November 20th, 2018, just under five years ago. It's, uh, you know, August as we're recording this. But yeah, that'll be the five-year anniversary of Fire and Blood. George had so much fun writing The World of Ice and Fire that he wrote way more than was necessary or even viable to put in the book. You've seen it. It's pretty big. But, you know, there's a lot of art in there, full-sized art, full-page art, maps, and things like that. So he wrote so much of the so-called extra stuff that the extra stuff was more than what he wrote for The World of Ice and Fire, which is a little funny because Fire and Blood is smaller physically, but longer in terms of word count. And that's where Fire and Blood came from, that extra material. All that so-called extra stuff became more than just extra stuff. And of course, he added a bit more to it and edited it. But ultimately, he unleashed himself on it. And it was interesting because he held back for so many years. A lot of authors have the attitude, in fact, most authors, like the overwhelming majority of of professional authors have the attitude that backstory and history and world building should serve the story. You shouldn't have much in the the realm of extraneous. Now, I'm going to bring this up later because I think that might be changing for modern audiences in some ways. But regardless, this is the way George, his career went. It was the common attitude for authors, as I've said, not just authors, but screenwriters, storytellers in general he had all these ideas though like he knew some of these details he just couldn't justify fitting them all in he's already fitting in a lot of backstory i mean he already puts in more than most authors would i wouldn't say it's extreme he does it to serve the story he it's not extraneous he's not just throwing what he can in there to fill it out just to add some more it's that's not how he operates i want to interject real quick it's worth noting that all that extra quote unquote extra backstory also allows him new directions to go in the future yeah. and covers up, uh, you know, uh, uh, potential mysteries or whatever. It clouds the information that we're getting to hide what he might really want us to key in on. So there's some value to that beyond just, I don't know, a lack of discipline in writing or whatever. I agree. And part of what you're saying is important because, and this is why I said we should talk about a little more later about serving the story and how much backstory you put in is because modern audiences are, we're more savvy. We're not, we're not necessarily smarter, but we have more experience with stories because they're just more part of our life. We have so many stories to read and inter- enjoy and entertain ourselves more than other generations that have ever lived on Earth. And we're able to put a collective effort into yes. it also. In the past, you might have a book club with five or seven people that would chat about it, but now we have a million people instantly interacting. Every theory that anyone might come up with is getting hashed out by people all over the world and it's not and it's the reverse of the crowd moves at the speed of its slowest members no a crowd like that moves at the speed of its fastest members the people who figured things out and whose ideas take hold within a community everybody vamps and explores and plays with those ideas not the ones that people suggest that no one cares about (laughs) so or the ones that came out a year later right (laughs) right and and to add to all that a song of ice and fire became much bigger as a story and as a phenomenon as a cultural global phenomenon than george had ever planned for or could have even expected or predicted we the fans demanded more on top of that like yeah we do want more backstory we want this world filled out more even if it's not part of the story not everyone wants that but if you're listening to this show you're probably one of the people that is in column a it's like yes give us more we'll take as much as you got george got any more of that history george (laughs) you know and (laughs) we'll (laughs) 
we'll totally take it whatever you know unrelated or not we'll find ways to relate it to the main story anyway even if it's not what he intended (laughs) we'll find those parallels and it's fun even without that so george's outlook changed he's like actually i should fill all this out because people want it i don't just have to serve the story we're creating a whole like fandom here it's not just a story anymore and so his perspective on that change his attitude changed, and that's why he unleashed himself on fire and blood because he had been holding that back and all of a sudden he woke up one day and was like actually i should go full bore on this i should let the fire hose go and flood the flood the lands like flood the neck right (laughs) so we'll be zooming in reading between the lines extrapolating everything we can I'm so excited for this reread. We've had this five years almost to think about it. You know, we had some great ideas when it first came out. We were flooded with all the newness of it. But having time to sit on it and think about it, mm -hmm, new ideas for sure. We'll also be doing the opposite of reading between the lines and extrapolating. We'll be looking at the big picture, high level angles, trying to look at the whole world or at least all of Westeros. Lots of different angles to this. It's one of the challenges, by the way. One of the things about rereads that really throws me is there's just so many rabbit holes and topics and everything else in between that we can dive into. It's like, well, which one of these do we actually want to focus on? We can't do them all. Some of them we set aside to talk about later. Some some of them we delve into now. Well, whatever. It's going to be a lot of fun regardless of which topics we've actually picked. And let me tell you, we've picked quite a few. I feel the need to point out here for me, this is just a read, right? A reread. Mm-hmm. I'm diving into it for the first time. So hopefully there's a few people out there that can relate to that experience. And hopefully I'll maybe have some new insights. Even if I have some ideas that are just completely wrong and I get corrected, maybe it will test why certain ideas are right or wrong. And, uh, Mm-hmm. I, don't know. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I, I hope that I get to bring a, a perspective to this that includes what you just said is I'm overwhelmed with rabbit holes. Yeah. Just reading through this, almost every paragraph, I'm like, I could spend an hour on just this, yep. you know? <laughs> <laughs> and that's a good segue, by the way. Yes, this is the last frontier of Sean's unsullied status. If you've been around with us for a while, you know that we started with Sean as a completely unsullied show watcher. He had not read any books. He, the show was new to Ever, him. Ever, not a single book. Not a book. No, he had I'm never joking. read any books at all. He was illiterate. <laughs> Illiteracy, what does that even mean? <laughs> I learned to read from A Song of Ice and That's Fire. right. You started off right on the advanced Like Davos. Level. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like Davos. You started with the song. You started with Westeros history as your <laughs> history egg of the seven. Aegon, yeah, Aegon. Yeah, Aegon, yeah. Can I offer you an Aegon in these trying times? <laughs> so you learned how to read through... Song of Ice and Fire, <laughs> and no, the but you read the book since then. You've read the World of Ice and Fire. You've watched the show and the first original show, and you've watched House of the Dragon season one. But you have not. You don't know what's coming. And I later. read. I read Duncan Egg Duncan also. Yes. So you read everything. Ex- read Duncan Egg two or three times, and so but I didn't read all of uh, World of Ice and Fire because I try to skip this Targaryen right. sections that might spoil House of Dragons stuff. Exactly. So. so this last frontier of your unsullied-ness is the Dance of the Dragons, the immediate time after it, and we're going to keep it that way. So that's that's part of our goal here with this reread of of Fire, Fire and Blood is we're going to go as far as the Dance of the Dragons. We're going to stop with Viserys' death, basically. And then we'll come back to it after season two and go a little bit farther and then, you know, keep going until we've we finished it all. And in the meantime, other things will happen. So that's going to be great. It's, it's a kickoff to our new Valar Rarita series. We'll be dealing with how it's all going to work. And of course, the start of the Targaryen dynasty, that's going to mean Aegon's conquest here in episode one. 
All that and more on this episode of History of Westeros podcast. And you know it's live because I'm just now having a thought that I can't believe we, we didn't go over before, but there might be some times when you guys want to talk about future stuff that might spoil me. I could sign off early. We could do a special episode, something like that. If there's enough demand. I don't know what you think about that, but right on. Just occurred to me. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Yes, it's time to get started on our reread adventure. Sean, what did you bring to drink today for this kickoff? Do you have a fire and blood kickoff beverage? You know, I wish it was a little deeper red. There's one of the naked drinks that's called Rainbow Machine, which is a much bloodier red looking color. But this is the berry protein mixed with wild and watermelon bang, which is back on stock now, <laughs> and kiwi watermelon. Uh, sparkling ice. That looks it's like a good mix. fire and like old blood. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of Valyrian. It's purple with some silvery white in it. Yeah. My thermos is much purplier than yours. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, we have we don't have the fire and blood. We don't have the red and black, but we do have the purple for their eyes. That's right. Yes. Does your thermos bring all the dragons to the yard? <laughs> well, it is very yeah, much purplier than mine. <laughs> it is very strong coffee, so I don't know. I don't know how dragons feel about coffee or caffeine in general, but I feel like I bet if they, they like a hot drink. If they did drink it, it would wake them up. You know, sometimes you need mm -hmm. that when you're slumbering for months at a time, like an old dragon might. So yeah, this series has been planned for a while. You already know it by name. We've been saying Valar Reredis since before it was actually a, a podcast series. It's just something we say to, to encourage it. The, the process of rereading is very rewarding in this world, and it helps you all enjoy our show more, I'd say. Throughout this episode, we will encounter topics that we've done full episodes on. Speaking of rabbit holes, some of those rabbit holes have been covered. We're obviously not going to overlap too much. We may point you in that direction at the end of this episode, I will list episodes that were relevant to this one. And this list will be long this time mm -hmm. and probably a lot of times in Fire and Blood because we're going to touch on so many topics, which enables us to uh, revisit things we've talked about before, at least briefly, or at least point you in that direction. Also, at the end of the episode will be the answer to this trivia question. What was and still is George R. R. Martin's nickname for Fire and Blood as inspired by J.R.R. Tolkien. By the way, we just saw a clip of Brandon Sanderson, the author of Stormlight Archive, Mistborn, and just staggering amounts of other things. <laughs> He's a real type A writer, where he and his podcast partner were talking about, they made a four-tiered system, like one through ten rating, that each author has a rating for like their impact their divert their um, ability to write different types of stories their just overall quality and i forget what the fourth category was and you have to be living still and george was there no george was brandon's number one because he gets a 10 in every category <laughs> and just hearing <laughs> him talk about why george is good at like an author talking about why george is so good is really interesting so uh i posted it in our discord so i guess this is turning into a little shout out for our discord but mm -hmm. more, mostly i just wanted y'all to appreciate another author just glowing about george and saying george is the best like current living author no one affected fantasy the way he did with one single book since tokian <laughs> so and tokian of course is not living so that given the way they framed it it makes a lot of sense anyway Enough plugs for George. You all already know he's great. You probably wouldn't be here otherwise. So Fire and Blood, not as complex as A Song of Ice and Fire. Let's start with that. Just some setup. It is complex in different ways. 
A good example is that we still have unreliable narrators, but it's a different kind of unreliable narrator. It's the same things that, like, a historian would put their own biases into something or the things that they aren't witness to. Whereas when we're inside someone's head, we're subject to their internal biases and things that have nothing to do with writing a book, writing down an accurate take on what happened in the past. It's just a different approach. It's like TV and radio have things in common, but there's pretty huge differences ultimately in how they're delivered and let alone the technology behind them. In A Song of Ice and Fire, we read between the lines a lot. <laughs> it's human POVs, after all. They're fallible. George is hiding things from us. He doesn't want to give everything away at once. There's secrets he wants to hold on to. He also wants to tease things. So there is value in, in delving in and trying to see what he's trying to tease to us. Likewise, in terms of the world of Ice and Fire, we have some overlap in the historical style. But it isn't written with a narrative like Fire and Blood is. That's like an evolution of George's in-world history. The World of Ice and Fire is, I wouldn't say it's dry, but it's not written like a story at all. Whereas Fire and Blood has a lot of story to it. It is like half narrative, half story, half history book, which I think is a good happy medium for George to have found. I remember when this book came out, that being a major point of comparison. A lot of people said that. That was a, an immediate reaction. It was like, this book is actually really fun to read. The World of Ice and Fire was more like people enjoyed the information in it. But it wasn't as enjoyable. To, it wasn't a page turner. It was like something you read a little bit at a time, maybe digest it, think about it, add it to your knowledge of the world. But yeah, you're not just sitting there. Most of us weren't poor. I mean, I was, but a lot of people, a lot of people <laughs> weren't out there just pouring over it. Fire and Blood, though, it is a page turner. You've got dialogue and narrative and characters and various storylines going at once, which has a bit of a Song of Ice and Fire feel to it. So yeah. And he didn't want to create an overview of the world from an all-seeing narrator's point of view. He wanted to keep that realistic in-world vibe going. There's no one who knows everything. Even George himself, if you've read the beginning of it, see how it's dedicated, or if you've listened to it, it says that the book is by Archmaester Gildane, transcribed by George R. R. Martin. So he really, he's really leaning into this vibe, <laughs> and I love it. It's like, George found these old texts <laughs> and transcribed them for us. Were they in English, George? What, <laughs> this is, what is Westerosi? <laughs> the common really tongue. Like? Yeah, the <laughs> common tongue. So I think that's really neat. So it's like, it's as, it's as if we're maesters of a citadel. We would be the ones reading this, because this book wouldn't be widely distributed in world, because... Most people can't even read in this world. Like, what would they do with this book? They wouldn't even know what they had. They'd use it as like a weight. They'd hold hold down something. Not paper, though, because they don't have that either. <laughs> it's not a paperweight. Some you might use it as a fire starter. Like yeah. Tear pages out. It's kindling. It's brilliant kindling. You're right. It's a tragic use of kindling. my stomach thinking about it that. It says fire on it, though, if they recognize the word. They're like, well, that's what this is for. It's for making fire. I don't know what that other word is for. Blood. It's like, oh, yeah, because of the paper cuts. That's right. Paper cuts. Yeah. yeah. Paper cuts are nasty. That's how to get you. Yeah. Do you get paper cuts on parchment? Is that what you call it? Parchment cuts or vellum cuts or I don't know. I don't know if it's jagged enough yeah. or thin enough. Paper cuts on uh, cardboard, so yeah, I don't know. I guess you're right. Mm. Going to have to ask the maesters about that one. <laughs> so, And this is true, too, of the real world. If you compare the world of ice and fire to fire and blood. I've read a lot of history books in my life. Some of them are more fun than others. And that just comes <laughs> down to the author. I mean, yes, some sometimes it comes down to the history itself, like some parts of history are drier than others. Some t time periods have a lot more going on. But you can do a lot by how you write it. If you make it interesting, you can make things interesting 
more interesting than they are, and you can also make things less interesting than they are. But George, <laughs> of course, that's not a problem here. I just you know, thought that was worth mentioning. I mean, sometimes the audience for a history book is other academics, and so maybe you're not trying too hard to be interesting, uh, to be engaging. Interesting, of course, is in the eye of the beholder. But yeah, just some historians are better writers than others. It's just as simple as that, right? That's just how it comes down to it. So I, that's how I view Fire and Blood as the work of a stronger historian, someone who has... Maybe not a better handle on the facts. In this case, they do, because it's George. But someone who writes better, which, of course, they do. It's George. Like, who's going to write in this world better than George? I mean, that's <laughs> doesn't need to be said. So it's more focused than The World of Ice and Fire, too, though. That's, I mean, I love the exotic locations in The World of Ice and Fire, the touring of all these places. And I wish we had a version of that in Fire and Blood style. Maybe one day we will, but... I do love the focus because it enables us to get really detailed in ways that we sometimes can't. So yeah, uh, the world of ice and fire, Maester, Maester Yandel, fire and blood, Archmaester Gildane. In world, Gildane gave Yandel permission to use his work. So technically, fire and blood predates the world of ice and fire in world, even though obviously in the real world, one it's the opposite. And George. Uh, one of the things we're going to get to do is take a second look at this with a few things in, in mind that w weren't there before. One of them is House of the Dragon, which maybe doesn't have a lot of direct relevance because that's the show canon. It's not the same. It will give us ideas here and there, things to vamp on and be like, well, maybe this was similar. We hadn't thought of that before. It might fit. Uh, the big one, though, is, is Aegon's Dreams. This is not show canon only, though. I know some people see it that way, but let's set this, let's set the record straight. George himself brought up the idea of Aegon's dreams during the publication uh, tour, the media tour, not for Fire and Blood, for the World of Ice and Fire. He brought up the idea of Aegon's dreams in public on like a commercial or something or like a short video clip in 2014 himself. He brought that up. So at the time, some of us thought, the way he phrased it, some of us thought he was responding to a fan idea, but that was, that was wrong. I'm, I'll take the L on that one. <laughs> uh, he absolutely was talking about it as if, as, as a real thing. Like, yes, Aegon had dreams. He hadn't, didn't bother to explain exactly. Cause again, it's just a little teaser for the book. And there's nothing in the book to, that points directly to it. It's something we just have to think about that goes along. So again, not show canon. You could call it, um, semi canon or not confirmed canon. Cause it, even though it comes from George, it's not in the book. I know some people, you draw the line as what's actually written in there. But, what George says, some people wouldn't go that far. I do. If George says it, I count it. Unless he changes his mind. And, of course, that takes precedence. So, You know, I was going to say earlier, talking about the idea of even George doesn't necessarily know all the quote-unquote facts. Yeah. Because he's, he's still writing it. And he's sort of gardening it as he goes. And he's leaving himself openings and hasn't made certain decisions. And so he could definitely have had an idea about the... Um, you know, uh, Aegon's vision or whatever, but not had it fleshed out enough to include in all his writings. Mm. But it doesn't mean it wasn't there. And it's an extra benefit of his writings coming from certain perspectives because those perspectives might have just not known, even though certain Targaryens did. And that's a way for George to wait to release this information because he's releasing information through certain perspectives that don't include this knowledge. Yes. Because he doesn't have it yet. That's so a very good point. When he figures out the knowledge for himself, then he'll find a way to get that perspective out to it. That's a great question just to ask. Will Danny learn that these dreams started with Aegon? Or maybe even before him. But that this person 
who's so important in her history for founding the dynasty as it is today, will she learn about that? I don't know how she could, but there, it's not that difficult to... He could have written it down. She could, she discover could have books. A, dr- a dream of her own about the past. Right? Yeah, like, why not? Like, the, like, yeah. I also want to point out, I think you're talking about, I don't know, quote unquote, current Danny Targaryen, but Danny the Dreamer, everything you just said could apply to her too, right? <laughs> yes. And that's Aegon's like great, great, great grandmother. He would have heard of her, obviously. Like the reason they're all alive still is because of her. And you wonder like, it's one of the many little rabbit holes. Like, what does Aegon and Visenian reign? He's like, what were they told about Valyria? Let, let alone, what were they told about their great grand, great great grandmother who had all these visions? And they have her book that she wrote all that stuff down, and that book is now lost. But it probably wasn't lost in their time. They probably still had it, you know. So they they were raised on like re- flipping through the pages. Talk about a book to flip through when you're a kid. Like, hmm. <laughs> the more I think about it, by the way, let me ask this: Do we know? Did she come to be known as Danny the Dreamer after the fact, or was she called Danny the Dreamer all along? Um, I don't know. That's a that's it's a good because, question. I, I'm guessing during because they followed her dreams during her life. You know, it was. Uh, I'm guessing yeah. they they left the tar- Valyria because of one of her dreams, and she was still alive for that and lived on after that. Like she was fairly young. Like her her dad was still the Lord when they moved. So my thought is, if she had lots of dreams and lots of visions, then probably a few other had come true before the, the doom. Absolutely. And, or they and wouldn't because enough it. came true, that that's why they were so worried about the doom. But if she had enough to have a book and to have <laughs> convinced them before the doom came, she might have had a bunch after the doom also, including oh, yeah. whatever Aegon's vision was. So. I totally agree. It's a, it's a very compelling possibility. What other dreams did she have? What other and in between them? Was Aegon the next dreamer down the line? I mean, they're, like we said, great, great, great grandmother, assuming I'm remembering that part right. But either way, there were several generations of Targaryens between Daenys the dreamer and, uh, and Aegon. So other dreamers potentially between there as well seems not unlikely. Maybe not to the level of Daenys because she's such a famous dreamer. It had her, I mean, it was in her name. And, well, Daron the dreamer kind of became Daron the drunkard, but mm-hmm. obviously we see how it's possible and it can, it can come in, in varying degrees of intensity. Some dreamers have lots and lots of dreams. Some of them might just have a couple here and there and, and we aren't entirely sure which is which. But yeah, I mean, then you have like, I guess with Ceres in the show where you have the example of someone who like maybe had one good, one dream their whole life and chased after that forevermore, right? That's a really compelling idea because you know, how many Targaryens like Viserys have been like, well, they have a really vivid dream. Like, am I a dreamer? Yeah. Was that is that going to happen? Or like just in the back of your mind, like, ah, it was just a dream. No, actually, that might have been a real mm-hmm. vision of something. You're like, well, every night you go to bed, like, am I going to see that again? Am I am I seeing it again because I'm thinking about it? Or is it really like like you would really I don't know. You'd really get in your head about that. I wonder if Spider-Man will tell the Targaryens. Everybody gets one. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Spider-Man is S-P-Y-D-E-R in, in Varys? Varys the Spider-Man? Yeah. yeah. Varys the Spider-Eunuch. <laughs> There's a lot of universes to say. Yeah. <laughs> and one fun thing about Aegon 2 as well. Not Aegon 2. I mean Aegon as well. Aegon 1. <laughs> you can be really specific here. Yeah. <laughs> is that 
he we mentioned that Danny Targaryen, I mean Danny, uh, mother of dragons, not Danny. So that's an important one, Sean. It's not Danny. It's Danies, not Danny. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and uh, they're similar, but not the same. Uh, they, uh, we get to look at historical figures and compare them, like Danny and Aegon. A lot of comparisons, but also Stannis and Aegon, and Stannis and Danny. It's like a triangle of parallels there, and we'll be going through a lot of those today, and probably in future episodes as well. I just know for sure we have a lot of them today. As as our pattern's going to be, we're going to have a little fun with how we do these episodes in the in the past, including with regular Valar Veritas for Song of Ice and Fire. We've just had a certain amount we wanted to cover each time. We don't have that restriction on us this time. We're going to take as long as it takes to get through whatever material we're dealing with. If it takes us a couple episodes, it does. If it takes us one episode, it does. So, ahead of time, it won't be fully clear what we're covering, but it'll be pretty clear because we'll know where we're at. We're going to know, okay, we're right at the beginning of Aegon's Conquest now, and we got through this amount of it today. Which we'll is, be picking up where we left off next time. Which is also to say that the episodes will be renamed to indicate what we reach. Yeah. So when you listen to this on the podcast end, it won't just say, fire and blood begins, it'll be fire and blood through whatever we decide. Yes. Yeah. As I said before, we're going up to the death of Viserys I in this reread, so we don't know how many episodes that will take, given what I just said. That's more than half the book. I'm, I'm not sure y'all necessarily realize that. It's 14,000 words are in that book, and 7,700 of them are, are where we're covering through. It's a little bit shorter than the book of Game of Thrones, this book. It's a little over 26 hours. Game of Thrones is about 28 hours. We'll occasionally have an IRL historical diversion rooted in some kind of parallels well. Not as much as we did for Valar Veritas for the World of Ice and Fire, but we do enjoy doing that when it's appropriate. Most of our real-world parallels will revolve around dragons. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the conquest in the World of Ice and Fire and Fire and Blood are almost the same, but we've never directly covered the conquest. When we did Valar Veritas for the World of Ice and Fire, we, we skipped it. Aegon's reign is barely covered in the world of ice and fire and pretty heavily covered in fire and blood. So when we get to that, which is not too long after, we'll have that to talk about quite a bit. And of course, we'll have the uh, the dream mixed in. So let's start our first quote. We're going to talk about what's the, the few years before the conquest, how it all got started. And here we go. Kick it off. The maesters of the Citadel who keep the histories of Westeros have used Aegon's conquest as their touchstone for the past 300 years. Births, deaths, battles, and other events are dated either A.C., after the conquest, or B.C., before the conquest. True scholars know that such dating is far from precise. Aegon's, Aegon Targaryen's conquest of the Seven Kingdoms did not take place in a single day. More than two years passed between Aegon's landing and his old town coronation, and even then, the conquest remained incomplete, since Dorne remained unsubdued. True scholars. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, he's really drawing a line in the sand there. Like, you're not a real scholar if you think this stuff is simple. He's dating. I like how it immediately nerds out after this into the description of Dorne's resistance. It's like, and even then, the conquest remained incomplete since Dorne remained... Like, even the book can't help but go into rabbit holes. Like, we're trying to, like, deal with all these rabbit holes. The book itself is like, let's briefly talk about how Dorne remained unsubdued. We're trying to talk about the beginning of the conquest and the dating, and he's like, 
Doran is really hard to conquer. A lot, a lot of different tries were made on this. Like, dude, stay on topic. No, I'm kidding. Don't stand. Go wherever you want, actually. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had a couple of thoughts here, too. One I want to point out, I think that's the first line, the first couple paragraphs of the book. Yes. Right? <laughs> and... uh and uh, and I also very much appreciate because that's how that's how I approach things too. Like first, let's define what we're even talking about yeah. here. I have a tendency to that, like yeah. lay the groundwork. Yeah, and uh, and the fact is that a lot of times historical events aren't so cut and dry. There's not just like one obvious date. Like the difference between like when we declared independence and when the first shots were fired and you know like in american history and and when the constitution was written and when the first president were those are all years and well, years like apart on a, small, on other, a smaller you know? scale i think about like in relationships like your romantic relationships a lot of sure, people like where yeah. you define when the relationship started is it your first kiss your first date when you said your boyfriend girlfriend when is your anniversary Sometimes, facebook official yeah, yeah. when you're basically like a lot of people <laughs> yeah. choose a day because they're like well this is just Maybe you could say this day, but this other month is better for us. So let's choose this as our anniversary. So yeah, it, it, it happens all the time. When Aegon changed his status to King of Westeros on Facebook, that was that's when it was. A- <laughs> <laughs> it's like started ruling Westeros. <laughs> AC one. <laughs> In parentheses today. Yeah. Today, uh, you know, another thought I had was I know this quote pretty well, and several others as as I was reading through this, I was I was pretty familiar with it because we've used so many of these quotes in our other episodes. Yeah, many many times I was recognizing very exact lines that were different contexts. I think the episode yeah. I said that I'll list the episodes that are good rabbit holes to follow if you want to stay immersed at the end of the episode. One that I need to state right from the beginning is before the dragons. We have one called before the dragons. And it really goes through what was going on in each of the various kingdoms right before the conquest. So that's super relevant to this one. And I'm trying to avoid to, uh, overlap on that. But of course, there'll be a little bit, but not too much. So that's a great one to go to if you want to really get even more basis for what was going on in this timeline. Not only do they argue, does the book argue with itself over the definition of conquest, but it also points out the the dating thing, like it says, uh, true scholars, of course, no s- such dating is far from precise. This really factors into what you were just saying, Ashay. That said, dating is far from precise. Like dating, like when does your relationship to begin? Yeah, no, other, ah, ha, ha, yeah, anyway. So there's the discussion of AC versus AL and AL, AL and BC. So it's AC, Aegon's conquest, AL, Aegon's landing, and BC before the conquest. BC is simple enough because... It's all the time before that. But even that is, even with that simplicity, it's like, well, which is which? Aegon's AC and AL implies there's a BC and a BL. <laughs> yeah, there was before the landing, yeah. So, officially, the conquest is dated to have begun when he knelt at the Starry Sept and was crowned by the High Septon. But within the family, they also celebrate the day he set foot on Westeros with intent to conquer. Very similar to... Uh, Henry or yeah, William the Conqueror, not Henry. William the Conqueror, who a lot of Aegon is based off of, and he landed and did a similar thing of of you know first time landing on England and beginning his conquest there. Even can I say even the way you phrase that, 
when he landed on the Westeros continent with the intent of conquest. Because he had landed there before, too, yeah. without necessarily... But he may have even had the intent of conquest in those times, but hadn't named, hadn't announced it yet. So yeah. there's still difficulties in really exactly saying what the date is. Yeah, like, and I really wonder about that. When did the idea come to him? When was it like, all right, I'm going to conquer Westeros? When did he decide? When was it just like, you know, I could do that. Or maybe I could do that. When was it like, I'm going to do that? When he had a dream? Yeah, maybe? it might have been the dream. That's a good question. What came first? His ambition or his dream? Was he an ambitious guy that realized it was all there and then he had this dream that he's like, now I also have a justification? Or was it a little of both? Was it sort of coming coming on at the same time? Well, you well, ran a poll, right, Aziz? I did run a poll on our YouTube page and most people think the dream came first. It's hard to say they came at the exact same time. I didn't leave an option for both because it's hard to say they would both be at the exact same time. So I wanted people to decide. <laughs> I didn't want, I didn't, it's too easy to say both. And yeah, it's it's a really compelling question. Like, was he was it when he was a teenager? Was it an idea within his family prior? Like, if other people had this dream, were they like, yeah, but we just can't do it. Like, we don't have the ability means to pull it off. Aegon may have realized finally the conditions were there, or maybe he's the one that finally just had the the chutzpah, the the strength. The desire, the drive, the bravery to actually do it. Or even maybe the, I don't know what word to use, intellect? Maybe. To, yeah. to put a plan together. Yeah. The realization, the, 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 the gathering of knowledge of like, okay, these are the different kingdoms. These are their leaders. This is what they need. Here's where I should start. This is what I can expect from the different ones. He might have like properly plotted it all out beyond just like, Let's attack everyone with dragons. He might have thought about how the politics would play out, how religion will be a factor, the, the distances that people need to travel. You know, he might have had a logistical mind to realize how to enact this plan. You're right. And we're going to see echoes of how that might have been part of his planning as we deal with these individual kingdoms. Because you're right. The political situation is very interesting. The timing is very interesting. Uh, and it might have been like a Rhaegar thing. Like Rhaegar was like well, it seems i must be a warrior and he his whole life changed like his life arc changed he decided he put himself on a different path because he thought he was some sort of prophetic chosen one and then later he's like actually it's my kid all right well that changes things like Aegon probably didn't think he was going to be the one to face the coming darkness because it seems like his dream the way it's framed it was coming but it it was in the future and so his dream might have been more like get this whole ball rolling not you're not going to be the guy to face it but you're a crucial starting point so is, is that what he dreamt or did he think that he was going to be the one to also do it i don't think his actions don't really his life actions don't really indicate he's the one who thought he would be the one to face that winter like he barely like he only went to winterfell once he didn't go to the wall even like personally so it doesn't really line up that way so i think we have to assume the dream Told him it was coming, but maybe somehow he was able to perceive that it would be a while from now. You, you from just now. stirred a new thought in me. I, I was already thinking about the potential Rhaegar parallel, right? Yeah. Um, but then you made me start thinking about the Stannis parallel. He made a similar shift. He was sort of content in his life station, but suddenly felt like, no, I have to do something bigger. Yes. And that also made me think, well, but he didn't have a dream, Melisandre. Someone else is telling him this is your destiny. Maybe that happened with Aegon too. Maybe some, maybe. Vicinia had a dream and told him this is what you need to do. And he didn't go to the wall, but who did go to the wall? 
Didn't one of his sisters fly to the wall uh, and not wasn't able to? No, that was uh, that was Alice. That was a, a generation later. That was a few huh? generations later. But yeah, but that did happen. Oh, okay. and that's really interesting. Yeah. So you're, I mean, you're not wrong. That example still fits. Um, not quite as tightly, but it's it's still really good. Yeah, and that's a good point. And maybe Aegon had the dream, but Visenya interpreted. Like he explained what happened, and then she's like, "Oh, that's what this means," you know. And he's like, "Oh, like something like that." Like so, he lays the dream out. Other people help him interpret it and and encourage him a certain way. Which I and I, you're totally right, Sean. To be like, yeah, Melisandre is the one that's pushing Stannis, and we should use that as a potential model for what might happen. Yeah, maybe Aegon was encouraged by. Visenya, Rainey's, someone else, Oris Baratheon, other people, his maester. I don't know, you know. So it might have been pushing Rhaegar too. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and it could be from within the dreams. It could be from someone in person. It could be multiple multiple individuals. It's interesting too that with AC and AL and BC, we have the same thing in real life, and with almost the same letters. <laughs> There's also a BC, <laughs> right? It's the same. It's not before the conquest. It's before Christ. And A.D. is Anno Domini, right? Now, that's falling out of favor for a couple of reasons. You don't see B.C. and A.D. nearly as much. One reason is, you, people, like, modern historians are trying to do something that's not religious. It's, like, removing Christ from the equation. Uh, because, not that they're denying that there was a Christ, but obviously there's <laughs> lots of details about that being's life that are disputed. Yeah, that's why they switched to the common and, era. Yeah, so common era Huge and before Huge swaths of that's the human population that have no idea of his existence. Why are they basing their years around exactly. him? Exactly. So, so, and even accepting that Jesus was a person, which I certainly do, there's not much doubt that he lived, we don't know when he was born. Like, we don't actually know his birth date. <laughs> like, people have had fun with it. The way we read into... A Song of Ice and Fire, looking at details, people have done that with the Bible. It's like, well, the, the red, co- the star that was in the sky when Jesus was born. Well, you can kind of extrapolate a little something from that based on like m- celestial events like that were recorded in ancient times. People didn't just like, oh, there's another star going across. Like, no, that people would write that down and like, oh, the star on this day. So you can kind of tell, like, it narr- helps narrow down like what season it was and things like that. You don't get a precise date, but that's the point is they don't know exactly. So, yeah. And now we have a whole new BC in modern times, which is before COVID, <laughs> which is anything <laughs> like f- when I put pieced it together, pieced it together as if it was some trick. Like how long ago was Fire and Blood? Five years ago, right? Almost five years ago. Mm-hmm. It was like, it seems like longer because of COVID. <laughs> That's why. It's not because of anything in, within the fandom that makes it seem longer. It's just because of COVID. So. Yeah, so something we're going to ask ourselves a lot about with Aegon and his sisters, his retinue, all the people around him is, did they see that coming either because of dreams or did they predict it or did they predict it because they they saw, they understood the personalities they were dealing with? Did they, did, in other words, someone like Heron Hor, Black Heron, or Argalak the Arrogant, did they predict how some of these kings and queens would behave based on what they were doing and did they use that to their advantage? It's, a, it's, a, it's going to be a common question. I encourage you all to weigh in with your thoughts and takes, and if uh, some of them will uh, will shout out. So it takes a little while for the conquest to get started, right? Aegon can't just wake up and be like, well, we've got dragons, we've got some money, let's do it. <laughs> no, it doesn't quite work that way. They had to build up, you know, worry about logistics and get it all started and the book of course details some some backstory before that as well it goes into the targaryen history family before the doom the ancestors those ancestors are a topic i'd love to cover we've talked about it for a while doing that 
there's not a lot there, but it's enough for us to do an episode on for sure. Anar, Danis, Gaiman, Damien, all these cool names. It sounds fun. It's a, even there's a little bit about Valyria in there. I mean, as I say, it's not a lot, but information on those topics is pretty scant in the first place. One thing that's really neat is the dragons. Of course, that's always neat. Before and after leaving Valyria, as we know, Vagar and Meraxes were born in Westeros. Valerian was not. And I think there's a lot of questions about Valerian and a lot of almost answers. I think Valerian is one of the reasons why the conquest was able to happen. I think prior Targaryens could have looked at their options for maybe conquering Westeros if they even had the idea in the first place and been like, Man, we've only got like a thousand troops. Remember what Damon said? Damon Targaryen in House of the Dragon? It's a direct quote from the book, so that's why I can quote the show as well. When he when they're analyzing their current situation vis-a-vis their army, right after the Green sees the throne. Damon says, Well, on Dragonstone, we've got about three hundred men at arms, you know, hundred crossbowmen, twenty knights. It's well enough to fortify this castle and protect it, but as an instrument of conquest, it leaves much to be desired. And he's saying, that's including the dragons. Now, of course, in his case, their foes have dragons too, so it's not quite as simple. Still, we've talked about this a lot of times in modern warfare, right, Sean? You can't conquer territory with just an air force. You need those ground troops. So, like, they got the air force covered and no one else even has one. They've got a navy too. They got Valarian, but those ground troops mean a lot. You gotta have that. And they didn't have that. And a lot of times you can defeat an enemy right they can fly a dragon over high garden burn it to the ground okay now high garden is yours good job like what is it you're trying to conquer what do you you can't rule over ashes right so i i was even thinking that a little bit too about the especially because we get some pretty detailed battle descriptions mm-hmm, right compared to a lot of battle descriptions that elsewise in george's writing it's just like this happened this this battle was won we get some details about like how the armies met and flanking on the field of fire and stuff like that and I was just thinking about the idea that, you know, when they have like 30,000 or 50,000 troops amassed, even if the dragon is just flying back and forth strafing, eventually a random arrow is going to hit the rider like that like happened, happen. yeah, right? Yeah. And and eventually, do, are the dragons just infinitely, do they ever get tired? Do they need to sleep? <laughs> do, they get t- do they run out of fire breath? Like even if they kill 10, 20, 30,000 troops, Finally, the dragon is tired, and Dragon Rider took an arrow, and it's still 20,000 more troops. So even with the dragons, Blarian might change the equation, though, right? Yeah, yeah, because Blarian is He might be big enough that you can't hit, right, you can't hit the Dragon Rider because Blarian's body is too big underneath him. Blarian's dragon fire is so powerful, he can do it from higher up where he can't be hit. He doesn't get as tired, so he can kill more and more troops at once. Even still, you kill 50,000 troops and you burn down High Garden, and why are you even trying to conquer this land? There's nothing left to have. So, that's, I mean, gotta be... you're describing what happened in Dorne. They're like, no, you didn't beat us. You destroyed our castle, but we're not surrendering. That's not defeat. Now, in, in yeah. most of Westeros, that is defeat. They're like, okay, you won, so we submit to the greater power. It's kind of, it's almost like that's their program to do that. Okay, you won. So you're in charge. Dorne doesn't work. It's not programmed that way. <laughs> like, that's not how it works. <laughs> so, yeah, so I think Balerion is pretty critical to the whole picture here. And you're like, why didn't the Targaryens do this earlier? Well, there's a lot of reasons why they might not have, just personality-wise and not thinking they could do it. Maybe they didn't have the motivation. Maybe they didn't have the dreams. Maybe that, that was more crucial than we think for getting Aegon started. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. Not just the dreams part, but just how, how many... I, 
it's like a, a once in a generation type of talent and like ambition, right? Yeah, the, the combination of all those. Yeah, qualities. I don't think that it's unusual for people for many for many generations to be like, I have a castle, I have a great life. Why do I need more? <laughs> Why do I want to try to conquer this entire continent? Like, yeah, like, that's a lot of work, and then I'm gonna have to rule it all. Like, you're mm-hmm. never gonna have a break. Like Aegon did. He spent most of his reign, which was long. Like, going from castle to castle, just, like, trying to get everybody used to this new state of affairs and being, like, don't remember. And show and reminding them of what's holding, backing it all up, that gigantic dragon. Like, yeah. you, 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 you turn on me. You got to face this thing. And a certain personality type would love that, would eat it up, would, 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 wouldn't be difficult. Like, it would be difficult, but challenging in a good way for them. Like, but you have to want to do that in yeah. order to actually make it happen. Yeah. Uh, so and, I do think you know, Aegon made- probably had a, a, some... In terms of the ambition versus the dream, I feel like he had to have the core of ambition in there. The dream's too. not enough. I agree. I don't like think the dream so. is not enough. You're totally right. Like that's people don't act on dreams alone. Like we, if, if all of us acted on all our dreams, we'd all have. I don't know. We'd all have accomplished a lot. And more I guess time. my question would be. I, I mean, we'll get into this a little bit later. But like you know, with, with Aegon turning to Essos first, right? The question is whether he'd had that dream before he turned to Essos mm. or if that is what changed his perspective. Because I feel like that speaks to him just kind of having war on the on the brain. It may have also shown him or like really nailed down what Balerion was capable of. Like Balerion, they were like, damn, that dragon is huge. But until you send him into battle, you don't exactly know. You're not like, wow, that just, he incinerated an entire ship or an entire fleet in seconds. And it's just like, until you see that actually happen, even as his rider, like the sheer power that you must feel being able to do that versus just thinking you can do it. <laughs> like actually setting all these dra- all these ships on fire. And the, the uh, what would that do? How would that go to your head? Be like, I can I'm the king of the world, you know, <laughs> like no one can do this. No one can get on top of this dragon and command it to do this. But me, they, I am superior to everyone. You know, like that's the kind of stuff that might pop in your head. If you're literally in that position. It, I got a couple thoughts stirring in me right now, just, and we've made the parallel to dragons and nuclear weapons a lot. And Oppenheimer just came out recently. Mm-hmm. Just scientists that had this theoretical idea of the type of bomb you can make by splitting an atom it was different until they actually did it, till they actually Good sold that point. bomb. That was a real significant difference, the reality of it versus the idea of it. Um, and uh, also just thinking about your point, Shay, that you had to have this once in a generation moment of having someone with both the ambition and the dream and the Balerian. <laughs> and I think even beyond that, you still needed to have the, the, the support of the people around you, you right? You had them. to have his sisters Charisma. and air yeah. dragons. And right, it's, you needed to have... Uh, you know, even someone that has a lot of drive and ambition, sometimes if the people around them aren't helping out, they still can't quite, or never mind, working against them yeah. or torn with other obligations. What if he did still have to like pay some tribute to Valeria back home or something like that? But he had the combination of the dream, the dragons, the ambition, the support, the the the, the focus, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera. So four unnamed dragons that died before Valerian that had come over from Valeria. And uh, clearly, those dragons didn't inspire a conquest. Obviously, we've as we've hammered away at the, a lot of things have to align for that. But I wonder, like, why didn't Visenya claim Valerian? Visenya's only two years older than Aegon, so it's not like 
there's this big gap of time where we can say, oh, well, the writer of Valerian died in the meantime, and, and that's why she didn't have access to, to Vagar. But it does make sense that she claimed Vagar very young, maybe. On the other hand... Or that she had a dream that her brother was supposed to get Valerian. You never know. Yeah, <laughs> but it is a, it's a curiosity. There's some pretty straightforward answers, but it could it definitely veers into some interesting territory. Possible, I mean, I, I just want to throw out, there's a possible that sometimes you just have a better bond with a dragon you're just like you just vibe with that dragon you yeah. like the colors you like the like sometimes there's just it's, it's just that simple i don't know you like one more that's a good point yeah i mean like viserys you know from house of the dragon he bonded with Balerion, but wasn't really into writing and then his dragon died and he didn't really want to get another one he's like eh, i don't need another dragon he wasn't really into dragons in general <laughs> you know <laughs> You know, I love Jaken, your, your cat, your yeah, cat Jaken, to be clear. Yeah. And he didn't get Casanova until a couple years later. Mm-hmm. But I still bonded with Casanova more than Jaken. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good you point. know, I think okay. it is true that you know, Visenya might have just seen Vagar. I might have seen the dragons available to her and been like, "This is the one for me." Those are pretty similar color pairings too. Jaken, our yeah. cat, is black. Yeah, <laughs> and Casanova is gray, like yeah. a like a Vagar. Like you know. Green, yeah. <laughs> Now, we know that those four dragons, it's, it's a, it was a compelling theory for a while uh, that maybe there was a miniature dance of the dragons amongst the Targaryens, which would explain why in Aegon and Visenya and Rhaenys' time, there weren't any other branches of the house. There weren't, like when Aenar the Exile moved House Targaryen to Dragonstone, it goes through this list of his siblings, children, kin household slaves dragons so like you can skip those last few because they're not family members but it was a big family he said it's his cousin siblings dragons are family okay i guess they are when you're targaryen yeah but not the kind of family i'm speaking (laughs) about here i'm talking about human family so they just there were fewer of them so it was was a theory you're talking about family you can have sex with (laughs) we're talking about targaryen family yes (laughs) you can't bang it well can you actually (laughs) and so they we know that they didn't have any sort of internal struggle that involved dragons fighting each other. Maybe Targaryens fought each other with swords and daggers and, or poisoned each other. We don't know about that. It's entirely possible because there's some some oddities in the way these families, the way it passed down, right? There were a lot of people who just didn't have kids and you know, brother inheriting from brother inheriting from brother, things like that, which is, you know, it doesn't usually follow that pattern. That's usually how it goes um, when you're not having a lot of kids or when there's war when people have died first so yeah we're, it's interesting to wonder about that and Balerion clearly wasn't ridden by their father either Arian Targaryen Daemon or Aegon and, and Visenya and Rhaenys his father because uh, Aegon had Balerion well before he became Lord as far as we can tell so yeah good questions there un- un- unknowns that one day we might get more information on it's interesting how few dragons they had. Remember that they were a low-ranked dragonlord family. And it's interesting that they weren't hatching more. They didn't, for some reason, they weren't able to press that advantage. Like, now we're the only dragon rider family in the world. There's no one else, like, pressing us to keep us, stay in our place. And, like, the 38th-ranked dragonlord family is trying to keep us down to keep us 40th. So, you know, and the 10th the strongest dragonlord family, if they were to push on us we'd be in big trouble you know but there's no one there's no one pushing on them at all they're only limited by their own well we don't know what the limitations are how does dragon sense of morality maybe (laughs) yeah 
Uh, yeah, besides where, yeah, they may not even be limited by yeah. that. <laughs> I, I really like the idea that some sort of dream convinced Aegon that he needed to do this because I I want to think of him as being heroic, but I don't think of people who start wars as being heroic. So yeah. I, I like the idea that he didn't want to go to war, but something made him believe it was important for the betterment of humankind. You know? And that's, again, our Stannis parallel, right? And I think that's why Danis, Danis, Stannis and Danny <laughs> combined... <laughs> really fit Aegon's motivations here. Danny is the currently motivated by the injustice to her family. She's like, I'm reclaiming what was mine, right? That's not a great reason, <laughs> right? To start a war on an entire continent. If she arrives, finds out there's this great threat and focuses on that, well, that is a much better reason if she's there to do that, right? Saving everybody. So between these two ideas, Stannis... The car, the argument or the point he makes is that, oh, I'm not king because I want it. It's my duty. I'm the king. It's it passed to me. I got to do this. Now, obviously, Aegon can't claim that it passed to him. But if he has this dream that it's his duty to do it, it's very similar to Stannis thinking, oh, it's my duty to save what's one child against every child in Westeros. Like these these twisted semantical philosophical arguments about what you're what's right and wrong when you're dealing with this supernatural global scale and prophecy and uncertainty well what if you're right well what if you're wrong i mean ah i don't know it's really tricky but but you can see how those things are reflected in Aegon. this the the desire the ambition that's in danny that she doesn't call ambition but that's what it is when she just wants to get back what's hers and i appreciate that she's distracted from that ambition by trying to stop slavery yeah like that's something that i'm happy for i hope she never gets there yeah like, keep doing what you're doing girl it shows that that's where <laughs> her like ultimately that's what like she this this quest to regain the throne was something was kind of passed down to her by her brother her brother put that into her mind like this is this great injustice done to our family if she had been raised differently she might not even care she might be like oh, yeah whatever that's in the past yeah, now raised <laughs> to think about other injustices like Slavery. Like slavery, where she's sort of like becoming her own person and, and having her own ideas about the world rather than being told that this is an injustice you must address. You can't let this happen. You know, just, well, actually, well, why not? It didn't happen to me. It happened to my dad and my dad sucked. Like, <laughs> it's like he kind of deserved <laughs> that. Right. Like if she were to be more sober about it, she maybe that'll happen one day. So, of course, Aegon doesn't have this. Oh, my family was overthrown. We deserve this. There might be a little bit of, well, my family and people like my family basically ruled the whole world when we had the freehold. And that was only 100 years ago, y'all. Why not? Like, we deserve to be back on top again. That's obviously pretty much just ambition. But it, it, it's still fueled by, it's fueled by pride in some ways, by regaining privilege. lost status. Yeah, priv the privilege of birth and things like that of, of, of what your family had privilege done Privilege of you. dragons. Privilege of dragons is a pretty <laughs> big one. Yeah. Might makes right. You know, like, you know, once the, whatever, once the United States has a massive military that can police the world, uh, well, do we now have an obligation to police the world? Yeah. You know, it's a tricky question. It but It's a very tricky question, yes. And if they do, then, you know, also to, when, they, when they do police the world, it's a mixed bag. Like, there's definitely some good things that come out of it, but there's some awful things that come out of it, too. And it's a question of, well, would it be worse if they weren't there? Would it be better if they were? I don't know. Like, these are, you, we only have a sample size of one <laughs> for these, these scenarios. We don't, we don't get to look at what would have happened. Until we have the multiverse device. Oh, that's true. <laughs> when the multiverse arrives, we'll have a lot more answers. The multiverse of A Song of Ice and Fire and Fire and Blood. That's true, too. Yeah. What, 
What I would the... love it if they did one of those, like they did for Marvel, the What If series, like an animated oh, yeah. series. Cool. I would love to see just some some alternate universe. I, I, yeah, I know I could turn to fan fiction, but you know. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> fan fiction, fan fiction doesn't often universe. go quite as high concept as uh, some of those What Ifs too. That's I true. Think. They go so, a little yeah. more low. They do a yeah. little more like slight changes. Yeah, or, yeah. So one of my favorites in terms of the setup for Aegon's Conquest. It's also potentially an answer to some of our questions, or at least it gives us a, a milestone to, to play with. The Painted Table. It's really cool looking. Uh, the show's given us different versions of it, which is maybe a little odd, but I don't mind because they're all awesome. And we've seen live versions out at like conventions, fan-made ones and stuff. I always gravitate yeah. towards it. I've got lots of pictures it's of my myself. My dream still various... to, to one day get one for Aziz. Ooh, yes. <laughs> We, yeah. We'll have to do a lot better with our show to be able to afford that. But hey, goals, y'all, hey. goals. Uh, so, I mean, I love maps in general, but this is more than a map. It's like a, it's a, well, it's a table map. And Aegon, well, when he had it made, it was well in advance of the conquest. So he had to have been thinking about it. It was probably just one day he woke up and like, you know what? I want a whole map of, of Westeros. No, it was probably part of that burgeoning ambition slash plan. Well, first I got to, get an idea what I'm dealing with. That's why he did a little bit of traveling, went to different places. We hear he went to Lannisport, the Arbor, Old Town. And obviously he'd been to Essos to fight against the pretensions of Volantis. So he'd been around a bit, more so than probably a lot of his ancestors had been for a while. They may have been somewhat rooted in Dragonstone. And like you said, just enjoying their wealth and prestige and not doing much else about it. Yeah, you know, I find it oh. a nice comparison to Viserys, actually. Well, yeah, um, yeah. Just, just that I feel that they and... both have kind of a hobby. I mean, you know, I he, I feel like it says that like, the quote I'm about to read, he talks about how it was, you know, carved and decorated at his behest. So I feel like he had some involvement in, like, make it prettier. Do, like, you know, I feel like, yeah, he was into it. How does it work? I imagine that as he went to different spots, he would find map makers, maybe the best map makers, yeah. and ask them to come back and help him make this carved table. Ooh, yeah. and, I like that idea. And the thing that would motivate them to do it is they get to fly back on Balerion <laughs> and see the world. Imagine wow. what a, a yeah. map maker getting to look down at the world and have the real perspective of it. We have, we certainly have precedent for Dragon Riders taking up a, a, a single passenger. That's it. Yeah. Only one. In the show, and I'm not talking about the show, which also that happened in, but it, you know, it happened in Jaehaerys' time. So it's entirely possible. That would make sense. Like you want to get a good map of the world, get that overhead view. You're totally, that's a great, I never thought of that. That's a great idea. Yeah. Imagine what a world changing event, what dream it would have been, you know, for, for a map maker or even an average person, I suppose. But uh, another thought I have is that it's, I think that the painted table is another example of like, I don't know, an exaggeration. I want to believe it's an exaggeration. I think that even, I don't even know if George realized what he's saying when he said it's a 50 foot table. That's <laughs> half a football field. Like what room is that fitting in? How long would it, you can't see the other end of it. Like it's not, a, I, I just, I'm For I'm planning purposes, it's a little unwieldy. I think it's 15. I think someone misheard 50 for 15. George <laughs> is known for making things too big. The wall, yeah. the throne. It did say he transcribed this. I think he just misinterpreted yeah. 50 for 15. <laughs> he was listening to the audiobook too. <laughs> here at 15 and 15, yeah. Well, let's have the quote now, the painted table quote. A common myth, oft heard amongst the ignorant, claims that Aegon Targaryen had never set foot upon the soil of Westeros 
until the day he set sail to conquer it. But this cannot be truth. Years before that sailing, the painted table had been carved and decorated at Lord Aegon's command. A massive slab of wood, some fifty feet long, carved in the shape of Westeros, and painted to show all the woods and rivers and towns and castles of the Seven Kingdoms. Plainly, Aegon's interest in Westeros long predated the events that drove him to war. Yeah, and I think he was lord when he had this made. It says decorated at Lord Aegon's command, so like unless they're just being sloppy with that. I mean, he would have been called lord by courtesy before he was officially lord of Dragonstone. But we can assume this was after his father died. But it may have been an idea he had when he was younger, when his father was still alive, and his father was like, eh, I don't want to do that. But I, I totally agree with you, Sean. Like, picturing it on the show, that ain't 50 feet long. But, but 15, yeah, it might be 15. It might be a little more than 15. But yeah, closer I feel to like what they went with in the show, is not that is not a change that I'm unhappy with. I feel like that, that yeah. size yeah. that they did seems... A like functional. the throne, it's too yeah. big. Like, yeah, it's just too yeah. big. You can't fit they that on a camera. They could not have shown. Yeah. They literally could not have shown a fifty-foot table on a show. Yeah. They literally couldn't have shown it. <laughs> yeah, it's too big. It's too big to fit in the frame. Yes, which is exactly the same argument for the throne. It was too big to do that way. <laughs> so yeah, plainly, indeed, this is plainly Aegon's interest in Westeros long predated the events that drove him to war. So yeah, I really wonder, like, how much attention did he have paid to like having the wall done just right, and did he? It was that. How much of an interest was that to him at that point, or was he just really focused on okay? That's going to be a challenge for my descendants. I, my goal, my job is to get this realm all situated so that my descendants can have it ready for the eventual darkness, which he probably still perceived as, as a long way off. Because, again, I really can't see any other way to look at it. Aegon's actions just do not indicate that he thought this would be a, an imminent problem, but still one to get ahead of, and he was still the man to do it, which is why you got to put a, a healthy dose of ambition into this character profile because yeah like how much could he have really known and again was he really the only one who had this dream first or at all here's another description of the painted table a discussion uh, from a song of ice and fire very relevant here stannis touched the painted table look at it onion knight my realm by rights my westeros he swept a hand across it this talk of seven kingdoms is a folly. Aegon saw that 300 years ago... Oh, I'm sorry, I want to reset. This talk of seven kingdoms is a folly. Aegon saw that 300 years ago when he stood where we are standing. They painted this table at his command. Rivers and bays they painted, hills and mountains, castles and cities and market towns, lakes and swamps and forests, but no borders. It is all one. One realm for one king to rule alone. One king, agreed Davos. One king means peace. One king does mean peace. I mean, in terms of the ethical argument for conquering, things did get a lot more peaceful after the conquest. There was a lot, a lot less war from north to south, from east to west, all in between. I mean, there were some wars still. Obviously, it wasn't pure, all 100% peace. But the average peasant had a very improved life under Aegon, as far as we can tell. They were a lot less likely to be called up to go to war, a lot more likely to be left alone, which is, as we've heard from several different characters, and it stands to reason intuitively that they just want to be left alone and not be dragged into the Game of Thrones. Well, when the Game of Thrones is settled at the top, at least relatively settled, 
then they're not getting pulled into that game, are they? So yeah, I mean, it's a tough call, but difficult. So is this the type of argument? The same thing Stannis is saying, like picture Aegon saying it to his sisters or to to have Lord Valarian and Lord Celtigar and the others around him, Lord Coheris and Lord uh, and Oris Baratheon, these other people. Is he saying, look at it, you know, this is going to be my realm or our realm. I wonder how he phrased it. It's, it's, you know, we're the strong ones. We should have it. Or if we don't seize this, it will all be gone. All this will turn to frost sometime in the future. Another long night will come and it's up to us to stop that. Like, did he use both of these arguments? I could, I could kind of think so. That's kind of where my head's at. Would love to hear other thoughts. But I feel like it. I feel like that's it. And I think that because he was charismatic, we're told George keeps his uh, kept Aegon's personality kind of hidden. I think that's an authorial choice to give himself room later. But it also kind of makes sense as as a guy that kept his own counsel. I mean, it's a valid human trait to have someone who's kind of authoritative and aggressive and ambitious, but also a little introverted about their talking, you know, having relationships with other people. So, uh, so I think that he had to have been convincing because people did follow him pretty willingly it said that other men were won over by his strength other lords same with women just he had that kind of personality a little robert baratheon without the boisterousness perhaps just people liked him they wanted to like you feel safe if he's in charge you know like well this guy looks like he knows what he's doing he presents that attitude that vibe you want to use a more modern term of just he projects success projects competence and he's got a plan people like a man with a plan people like a woman with a plan people like a plan you know if it's a good plan and especially if it's a plan that if it works is gonna do good things for them you know and in particular i wonder about his sisters like what did they think of his dreams were they like instantly bought in was it the case where they were pushing him like no you got to follow your dreams or was he dragging them into it if when 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 and if this is ever written down for a more detailed story. That's, this is a, an important decision that they're going to have to make. And they're, uh, I'm not sure which is the smarter decision from a storytelling perspective, because it's probably be how they'll consider it. Like, well, what's going to be the most compelling way to frame this? But for now, we get to think about it in our headcanon and wonder about these possibilities. Um, here's another quote that helps us kind of understand maybe why, and from another angle, why prior Targaryens and Valyrians didn't take Westeros, something that we haven't mentioned yet that is definitely worth bringing up. The wealth of the Westerlands was matched in ancient times with the hunger of the freehold of Valyria for precious metals, yet there seems no evidence that the dragon lords ever made contact with the lords of the Rock, Casterly, or Lannister. Septon Barth speculated on the matter, referring to a Valyrian text that has since been lost, suggesting that the freehold sorcerers foretold that the gold of Casterly Rock would destroy them. Archmaester Periston has put forward a different, more plausible speculation, suggesting that the Valyrians had, in ancient days, reached as far as Old Town, but suffered some great reverse or tragedy there that caused them to shun all of Westeros thereafter. So in addition to just not being ambitious or motivated enough or not having a dragon they thought was sufficient to pull off a conquest or not having the proper 
dreams behind it, maybe even. Just didn't want to do it because of this prophecy that told them that it would cause their own doom. Arguably, that's what happened. Like, they might look back on the the doom and be like, well, is clearly these things can happen. <laughs> the entire doom of a thousand year, multiple thousands year old empire of sorts can end. Well, then we got to take these things seriously. And because it would have been much easier for them than it is for Reagan. We can't look at it as like, oh, well, they just didn't want to. They just couldn't. Well, maybe they didn't want to, but the whole they couldn't is ridiculous. They didn't have this manpower problem that Aegon and his family had at the time. It was before the Doom. They had infinite manpower, if you want to look at it that way. So it wasn't a mat. You can't say, oh, well, it just wasn't feasible. It was absolutely feasible for Valyria to conquer Westeros. It would have been maybe even easier than some of their prior conquests. It probably would have been easier than the Roinar in some ways. And if it got bad, well, just unleash all the dragons. They had at least 300 dragons on the Roinish people at one point. Imagine just 50. Just just send 50 <laughs> to Westeros. Like, it's over. Like they would, Westeros would be like, we're done. We cannot possibly fight against this. When did they take over the Roinar people? Mm, sort of. They defeated them. They sort sent a of. bunch of dragons, killed a bunch of them, but they didn't really take over, right? That might be the thing. They might have been able to, quote unquote, conquer Westeros, but not rule it after the fact. And that's maybe true. they didn't want to bother with that. Yeah, you know? that's true. A lot of the Roinar cities were just destroyed. They weren't really ruled afterwards. They, they in some cases, built cities in near nearby and just replace them but yeah they didn't it wasn't really you're right it wasn't really a conquest so much as a, a a genocide but it played out over a long time but yeah like and and this is another reason to think about Balerion and the difference like picture what you've seen of Vagar on TV like that's whoa right enormous right we haven't even really seen Vagar go up against a tough target we saw Vagar take out a much much tinier dragon okay well if your horde of 50 dragons are all the size of Arax, all right, we're going to fight you. Like, that's not a game, that's a game changer, but we might, we're not just going to bend the knee to those little guys. I would still bend the knee. I would too, to but you can see why they would. <laughs> that thing is still true. It breathes fire and it flies. There's but, it, kill him. but it's not you like <laughs> you can be brought down with like regular arrows. You know what I mean? Yeah, regular yeah. crossbows. Like, you can imagine they're not melting castles. Fight it. Like, yeah, you, you can might imagine. change your mind after the fact, but yeah, yeah you can see that you might. Put you're not up just going to give up right away. Yeah, so you're going to you're going to try to fight that. Like people didn't give up against elephants when they first encountered elephants in war. Like they're like, we're going to try to fight that. We're going to try to find a way around that. We're going to try to find a way to scare the elephants or to drive them off. You know, not have to fight them directly. I mean, people may have thought they could scare the dragons, and they might have been like, oh, he can't really control it that well. He can't be that precise with it. It's just as likely to turn on his own troops, right? Wrong. I guess but maybe they might you, could even, <laughs> you could maybe even compare it to like fighter jets or bombers in World War II. Yeah. Like they were powerful, destructive, effective, but they're not a nuclear bomb. We're not yeah. going to give up because you have some fighter jets. Exactly. Like if you got a bunch of air axes flying around, like, well, maybe we can, maybe we can win. Maybe we can kill the riders. Maybe we can overcome this. But yeah, but Balerion? You just can't. There's just nothing you can do. I mean, like you said, maybe you get lucky and hurt the rider, but that's about it. Like you got, they did eventually try to, like the Dornish, they tried to assassinate Aegon. They're like, well, we're not gonna, we're not gonna kill that dragon, but we might be able to kill the rider. He's not on it 100 percent of the time. Yeah, we got a shot. So, yeah. So there's a a lot of different possibilities here. Let us 
move on to our it's been about an hour we're about closely halfway through this episode so let's take a little short break answer a few questions and get back to it this episode is sponsored by hellofresh go to hellofresh.com slash 50 westeros and use the code 50 westeros for 50 percent off that's a lot half plus free shipping so in a sense it's more than 50 percent off it's America's number one meal cap. We meal delivery services have been around for quite some time now. I remember when they were new, kind of a like a novelty, they're kind of just getting their feet wet as a, as a thing. But here, many years later, many years later, they've become more efficient, more experienced. Lots of customer feedback taken into account. That's a huge one from my person, uh, from from where I'm sitting anyway. There's a much wider selection of meals tailored to different lifestyles, vegan, vegetarian, low carb, high fat, pescatarian, pescatarian, uh, dairy free, things like there's way more options than there used to be different size families. If you need something fast, you want 15 minute meals, or you're trying to cook a big group dinner, lots more options. Plus in my experience with this, and I know Shea can back me up on this because we've done this together. Cooking with a recipe I mean, it kind of just teaches you new things, especially if the recipe is nice and clear. You may, I don't know, if you're like me, you kind of don't, you don't like getting started on that sometimes. You don't like get excited about new recipes. I know some people out there are, but when you're doing it in the, actually accomplishing it, when you've actually done it, uh, you feel like you've accomplished something. I do. And then I hang on to some of that knowledge. I might remember a little bit of what I've just done and that might help me later. So so that leads to more variety in your, in your eating habits, even when you're not eating from a meal delivery service. So having it just for a short time or for a long time can really change your life in, in small ways that can be pretty meaningful. Yeah, no, I find it really can inspire you to for, for different types of meals. And be like, oh yeah, I could totally be making this whole category that I never really messed with. Yeah, you might not, you might find something you didn't realize you liked. Yep. And that's, you might be, wow, I've been missing out all this time. <laughs> I have a friend who recently was telling me he's been doing it for a while and uh, that it has definitely, he, he never... It just wasn't in his range to bake vegetables, but mm. he started doing that. And he's learned different like recipes he's had that had different spice combinations. He now knows those spice combinations work. So he, nice. when he cooks something aside from what they send him, he's got new things in his tools and his belt to use. Excellent. That's a perfect example. Yeah. So go to, again, go to HelloFresh.com slash 50 Westeros. Use that code 50 Westeros. Sign up for America's number one meal kit. Get started on that tasty healthy journey today christina k says on the topic of bcac plus it just disregards any major events essos has yeah that's a good Which point raises yeah. the question if we read an essos history book well i imagine it'll depend on if we're reading a, a, Yeet, a yeetish history book versus Ravosi one i wonder how standardized their measure of of, of time is mm. of cal like how do they date things i imagine Yi for example, does their own thing, but maybe all the free cities do one same, like maybe they're standardized across, yeah. like uh, there might be like a point where you're like everything west of Yi uses one measurement and everything, I don't know. That's uh, a good they're point, they're particularly yeah. ancient is why I would think they would be a little bit different. I think about like Chinese calendars. Yeah, they wouldn't be making a new calendar because some dude. No. Thousands of years later. Not another continent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, of course not. Something. Yeah, what do they care? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I would be curious to know 
I, I like the idea that Bravos like they like once once the doom happened they go before and after doom. <laughs> That's what matters. Bravos to them. like yeah we like that one. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. And that is probably as significant a marker as uh, Aegon taking over Westeros, right? Yeah, yeah no, I feel like, like there might be one perspective. That they use. Yeah, as the doom might be a pretty major one, but there might be other. Or, uh, yeah, I'm super curious about how SS would do calendars. The more I think about it, the more realistic I would think for other continents and lands to not use that dating system. I, I wish I knew the history a little bit better, but in the real world, you know, whenever the Romans started using that date, Aztecs didn't know anything about that. Like, people <laughs> yeah. didn't care They're about like, Jesus being born. Who? Like, so Christ? eventually as they conquered the world out and, and through trade and other things, it, it sort of spread and took hold, but it still hasn't completely taken hold. The Chinese still have their own calendar. Yeah. So. I mean, like you what, said, the Mayan why calendar, would, calendar. Yeah. 300 years is a pretty short time maybe if Westeros went and conquered all of Essos, they would institute <laughs> that them on right that now. Calendar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're right. That, you hear that, that George, we want the, the ET calendar. And calendars, <laughs> like you're, you're right to point that out. Like that it's, they are often a sort of just like, who's the most powerful. Like we use a calendar that pretty much started with the Romans. Like that's where that came from. Like we changed the BC AD stuff, but the dating, like the months and dates are all based on, that and yeah. it took a long, long time for that to spread out to, to to be very standard within itself. Even within the Roman culture, they kept changing the dates. Just different emperors had name one month after me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's true. Uh, Julie A takes us from BC to the BBC, pointing out that Queen Elizabeth's j- jubilee had uh, commissioned a forty-three foot table for her. Isn't that crazy, Damn. Sean? I know. Yes, that is crazy. That is crazy. Let's see what this table looked like. Dang. <laughs> yeah. where, where is this table now? They're like, oh, they just turned it into kindling after. It was just a one-use table. <laughs> just throw it out after. They had to, like, re... re what's the word? Refurbish? Re... Reestablish a whole soccer stadium to put this table into. <laughs> they don't have they don't have soccer games in this stadium anymore. They have dinner. <laughs> Dornish Dame says, as, as much as I find the theory Aegon didn't father Aenys or Magor interesting, I wonder if also wedding Rhaenys came from the knowledge slash belief that her line would be the one to eventually fight the others. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Like, did Aegon's dream include specifics like that? It was just like, oh, the Tar the Targaryens need to be on the throne to fight this evil this darkness or is it more specific is it like well it's going to pass through a particular one of your sister wives maybe that that could explain some of visenya's actions later if she didn't believe in that or if she saw it differently or yeah because obviously these two branches do collide later and it's pretty bloody and gruesome and we were when we get there we'll talk about how the dreams might factor into uh, causing some panic or causing some people to feel it was necessary. So very good point there by Dornish Dame. As often, Dornish Dame has great points. Also, Lolotov sends a super chat and says, do you miss anything with the audio of Fire and Blood maps, etc.? Yeah, you do miss a little bit, but those things are in the audio. Like you can, they're, they're there. Uh, there's a big PDF attached to the audio that you can see now it's not going to be popping up right at the right time there's a lot of black and white art throughout yeah the book book does have a lot of art and there are some maps i'm not sure if all the art is in the pdf i think it might be i think it is i think think it it is yeah Yeah. uh and the maps are certainly there so it should be there if you get if you're listening to the audio version 
then be aware of that. And if you don't have the audio version, well, you can go to our website and we've got links for you to buy it. And you'll be supporting the show a little bit by following those links to do so. Westeros.com. Can I say in the chat, in the chat, people are sharing different uh, years it is in different cultures, you know? Oh, like, for example, awesome. uh, the couch stallion says in Thailand, it's the year 2566. Oh, nice. Um, it's the future. Yeah. Lolotov <laughs> says it's Hebrew year 5783. Oh, it's which the past. Yeah, which is where <laughs> biblical literalists get the 6,000 years mark. That's the start of their calendar. It's about almost 6,000 years. Very cool. Um, and then, of course, yeah, it's, you know, Chinese people have different calendars as well. So, yeah. There um, are probably – I wonder how many f- total, like, dates there are. It's probably in, untraceable because there's so many, like, small cultures that there's only, you know, not that many people who are still living in that culture, but they might have those records somewhere. Yeah, there's, there's got to be – I'm curious what the youngest – calendar you know like yeah, what's the smallest like, year what's the smallest year yeah that's, all of these are farther ahead they're not it's, they're, they're like it's one minute old i just made it <laughs> <laughs> no i just made one it's even younger <laughs> i made another one. Oh, oh no <laughs> i made two more oh <laughs> dang it I'm... nothing i can do about that you got me. <laughs> yeah, I just keep the spirals going on for a long time you can make three more but i don't think you're good enough so. i'm not you're totally right yeah so another point here about the audiobook. If you guys are experienced listeners and you hadn't listened to Fire and Blood before, you may be like, who is this guy? It's not Roy Dotrice. Yes, of course, unfortunately, Roy Dotrice has passed, so he couldn't read Fire and Blood. He did read part of The World of Ice and Fire, part of it, and the sidebars were read by another guy whose name I forget. But Simon Vance has read the read Fire and Blood, and he has done a lot of reading uh, of various audiobooks in this world and the real world i mean yeah <laughs> earth i mean <laughs> let me know when harry lloyd does it yeah give us harry lloyd he's so good I- i'm taking in glenn too there's there's plenty of people that that would be fine but i'm very curious how that will that decision will be made and when the time comes because sometimes it's up to, it's like well if simon vance has got another project like he might pivot away because this one's so big but that I don't know. Yeah. Don't know. I'll so, say, I just want to say also, uh, Christina K says maybe the shortest one would be whatever the Maori use. Um, but mm-hmm. also, um, North Korea starts in 1896. Birthday, oh, birthday of the, King Il Sung. So that's probably that one might of be the shorter the ones. One. Yeah. Um, yeah. Might be North Korea. Yeah. So their year one is is our year 1896. I US believe year that's what is the case. Yes. So only a hundred and what? 27 years 30 uh-huh. yeah. uh-huh. neat huh so earlier at the beginning of the episode i mentioned how audiences are more savvy readers are more savvy we're better at picking things out sean brought up the excellent point that we discuss these things on the internet now where the best ideas float to the top really quickly so if one person figures it out and the evidence lines up all of a sudden everybody knows a lot of story here's a couple of good examples of this Authors changing their plans because fans figure something out. That has happened on multiple TV shows. That has happened in the real time book series that happened. Uh, And it was a big mistake for Robert Jordan to change something that he had laid out because fans figured it out. Like, you can't take away that you laid this thing out. It's this looks really awkward that this character isn't the person that you laid them out to be. Like a secret identity kind of situation where it's like, nope, that's not him after all. Like, what 
How could it not be? It's everything pointed to it. And like, nah, we're just, nah, I just, nah. Changed my mind. <laughs> I don't watch it, but my family does. The Blacklist seems to have done that too. They oh, seem to have been yeah. setting something up and the audience figured out and they're like, never mind, we're not doing that after all. And everyone got just, yeah, because like, no, people like to have that validation. It's like, it's not yeah. better. It's like the validation of figuring reward it out. People is, for watching and analyzing and figuring out, reward them with the correct yeah, conclusion. Like, yeah. it's just like this weird ego move. We're like, oh, they figured it out, so I have to change it. Like, no, you're ruining your story, man. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, so it's a really bad call. So that's why. And I think people might, I think creators may have learned that lesson pretty quickly. Hopefully that they're like, no, don't change the ending. People figured it out. Just don't just, if, if they figured it out, fine. They figured it out. No big deal. That good for them. Like, okay, maybe next time make the twist a little harder to figure out. Or I think, I think lost and Westworld both had this issue as well. Just, just to, to a certain yeah. degree. And both those shows, in my opinion, went downhill pretty badly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not I only concur. for that reason, but you know, anyway, so uh, this is my argument for maybe a little excess backstory, a little excess history is a good thing because it's harder to figure out twists and what's coming. Throw in a little extraneous information. It can be fun if it's well written. It can add to the world and fill it out a little more. If it happens to not serve the main story, well, arguably it does serve the main story. If it's concealing the truths you're trying to conceal, then that does serve the main story. It doesn't serve it as directly as adding to the evidentiary body of what you're trying to slowly bring people into. But hey, the world's changed. Internet exists. Authors got to do things a little differently. Don't ruin your story over it, though. <laughs> All right, soapbox rant over. But yeah, it happens. It's, it's happened so many times now, and I don't remember it ever happening when I was young. You know, it's like a new phenomenon. Authors changing the ending because people figuring things out. Shows and books. So George was kind of already sort of his style already kind of worked to this. Plus, he leaves us hanging for a long time. <laughs> Let's throw that out there, too. <laughs> you know, there's that. We, we get to think about it, and we still haven't figured it out. Like, well, I mean, it. There's a lot of things we've, we've probably figured out. But there's still a lot of mysteries that we haven't. Because George did a good job of setting them up. These are well-written mysteries. So some of it is That, that is another thing about having a very... <laughs> Another thing about having a very broad, deep story is there are more different things to figure out, things that might not be directly tied to the central storyline. Well, what if you don't even have a central storyline, right? Yeah. Like having a bigger world lets you have a lot of concurrently running interweaving storylines and people can figure one or two, but not all of them. You, it gives you the ability to go off track to different storylines, to different continents or whatever else yeah. you set up in there it, whether it's because you think of something new or you're worried about people figuring it out or whatever it is like one of the types of discourse that uh, comes in a lot of fandoms is like people that especially somewhat unique to a song of ice and fire fandom is people trying to apply standard things to a song of ice and fire like who's the main character like well there isn't one well, was again, but if there is, who would it be? Like, why do you need that? Like, why? Why that's put right, it in that box? It doesn't fit in like, that box. People talk about things like the big five and like stuff like that. Like they're like, well, we have to have who, who's our core. Has. We don't. No, we don't. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I agree yeah. that people do say that, but yeah, yeah like, why though? I will <laughs> say, I, I want to bring a counterpoint up is that sometimes it does make it easier to pitch to your friends or, okay. or market okay. to the audience. There's some value to it, but even still, when, when I, I'm, I'm thinking about when I started watching Game of Thrones, what I did each episode is I wrote down the characters and a line between each character interacted with each other. Mm. And so I could start to see who had the most lines coming into and out of them. And okay, those are 
quote unquote the main characters. Still, but it was hard for me to remember. There was like eight or yeah, nine of them. Like, you sometimes know? I feel like those are just the 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 hinge characters, the linchpin characters. Those are the characters that right? connect yep. other characters yep. that might have the most line. Like maybe there's yep. a main character. Like, maybe like a, Sam Tarley might have had a lot of lines connecting, but you might not have said yeah. he's the main character the, compared yeah. to John. I mean, I, I love him, and, but you know. And sometimes the character's position in the story in and of itself might make them seem more main, like the king, like Robert might have seemed more main because he's the king, you yeah. know, but he's, he was tertiary, secondary at best, you know. Or or, or um, if you divide it but, by book, like you could maybe, maybe Ned Stark right, yeah. is the main character of book one. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's what I was deducing as I was watching the first season. I was like, okay, I'm pretty sure it's Ned pretty sure he's main character and you got his head chopped off so yeah. like okay like, well, well he was he was the main character for yeah. the first seven episodes but yeah <laughs> not anymore <laughs> I, I, this is also a reminder of how big of an unknown magic is in this era now we know from quote-unquote low magic area zones or times that dreams are always happening. Like dreams never seem to completely fall off. Like Daron, the dreamer is having dreams in a low, in a so-called low magic era. Melisandre was having dreams and stuff. And it's more of an ebb and flow than it is an off and on. I think. Darren and Duncan egg, right? Yeah, that's Aaron. Yeah. Like this is something we talked about in our, uh, before the dragons episode, but it was more aimed at, the various houses of Westeros and the mainland and less aimed at Aegon and the Targaryens. But it's a big unknown there too, of course. Did they have well, glass candles? Were the glass candles burning at this time or not? Were they... Uh, how were the hinges of the world behaving? You know, were they like full of energy or were they a little at a low point? Maybe the fact that Aegon's dreams were so potent in this era. I'm assuming they were, which maybe they weren't. Maybe they were more faint and faded. Maybe that's why they were vague or, or maybe they weren't so sure. But maybe they were really vivid and that is a reflection of the magic of this era. Like it, the conduits are stronger. The, the tendrils of dreaming, the f ebb and flow is more powerful in this time. It's a, it's a flow rather than an ebb at this, at this time. Maybe the moon... Cl being closer matters or there's a different comet maybe there was a comet in this time maybe there was a maybe there was a red comet or a blue comet or a green comet some other colored comet <laughs> <laughs> a black and red comet for the for house targaryen you know wouldn't take much for i'm rooting for a pink comet <laughs> a pink comet you would <laughs> the barbie comet no <laughs> that's yes, what it would be now yes. before it was about you now it would be about barbie <laughs> so of course, an unanswerable question. Very compelling, very fun to think about, though. And one that we'll probably never get tired of. We talked a little about before about why the prior Targaryens didn't take about Westeros. If we're backing up to that topic just a little bit, we can talk about how the prophecy leads into that and how this creates parallels. Like I said, Stannis parallel, but different parallels here. Daenerys and Stannis, three dragons, quest for a throne, and dreams. Because let's not forget... Daenerys has had a lot of dreams of her own building up to the hatching of the dragons. And then after that, she's having visions that are maybe given to her. That's a whole nother topic, but the dream she has before the hatching of the dragons might be given to her as well. But there seems to be a difference between the quality and even quantity and quality? the way they manifest. What about the quality? The quality, yeah, the quality, mm -hmm. the quality as well, the quality and quality. And with that, we maybe see that someone is, you know, maybe adding to her dreams or giving her more dreams to 
lead her on this path of saving the world, whether it's Quaith or people with Quaith or other people entirely. So we have to consider that a thing for Aegon. Maybe someone was manipulating his dreams. Maybe someone was giving him dreams. Either way, the painted table scenes really drive home the similarities between this early phase of preparing to conquer and getting all the ideas together and realizing that, well, this won't be enough. We need more. But if he's arguing like Stannis did, that it needs to be done, well, we've got this Stannis quote to, again, maybe help frame the argument he would have made to his own people trying to win them over on what would be a very difficult thing. Like, yes, he's the king. He's their lord. He wants to be a king. And the Valarians and the Celtigars are going to do what he says, but they might have pushed back quite a lot against this idea. Been like, yo, this is a huge endeavor. This could really backfire. So if they aren't bought in in terms of their own ambition, like think of all the rewards you'll win, then this is where it comes back to duty and prophecy. And here we go. Stannis's quote to Davos. His hand swept across the painted table. How many boys dwell in Westeros? How many girls? How many men? How many women? The darkness will devour them all, she says. The night that never ends. She talks of prophecies. A hero reborn in the sea. Living dragons hatched from dead stone. She speaks of signs and swears they point to me. I never asked for this, no more than I asked to be king. Yet, dare I disregard her? He ground his teeth. (laughs) (laughs) We do not choose our destinies, yet we must. We must do our duty, no? Great or small, we must do our duty. That's Stannis for you. That's perhaps the most... The grinding the teeth. The grinding the teeth and the going on and on about duty. That's that's the (laughs) most... Like, if you had to pick a... The most Stannis <laughs> moment. That might be it right there. <laughs> yeah. All this like twisted logic that might be right in this talk of duty and the grinding of the teeth. Yeah, that's Stannis. The three things, right? So as you pointed out very well earlier, Sean, the she is Melisandre here. He's referring to the darkness will devour them all, she says. In Aegon's dream, well, the darkness will devour them all, my dreams say, Right? Aegon, of course, wouldn't be concerned with dragons from stone or a hero reborn in the sea, but he would have his own little details from his dreams that might be relevant to their timeline. Little, I don't know, uh, maybe he is a hero from the sea. <laughs> you know, he's from an island landing on the mainland. Uh, the stone dragons, though, that part, not much way to fit that one. But <laughs> still, there'd be other signs and portents relevant to his time. And he would be a lot of concerned with a lot of these same things, like doing his duty and darkness enveloping the whole continent. Like, that's a bad thing. There's lots of things that pop up in Stannis and Melisandre's chapters that would be very similar for Aegon. Not to mention, look at this other parallel, which is going to lead us to our next section. Nicely. Nice segue action here. Melisandre isn't Stannis' wife, but is kind of like a wife. She's kind of like a wife, kind of like a second wife. Aegon has two wives. Maybe one of them is a little more dutiful and the other one's a little more head in the clouds about prophecy and stuff. Maybe it's, it's not the exact same mix. Visenya and Rhaenys aren't going to be like carbon copies of Melisandre and Selyse, of course. Plenty of differences there, just as Stannis has plenty of differences from Aegon. 
But there's some very notable parallels here. Even Danny has that uh, to a lesser extent. She married his dar, but hooked up with Dario. And that's what's said about Aegon. He married Visenya out of duty and Rhaenys out of desire. Of course, there could be more to it there. Also, like there is for Danny, there's more to it there. And with Danny, there's more to come. She'll probably remarry and probably have other lovers or maybe one of each maybe <laughs> i don't know <laughs> but but she's not done with just with his dar and dario or not the end of it i think we can be pretty sure about that and so that brings us to this next section as i said polygamy and how aegon's choice to marry two wives has had far-reaching consequences of course his conquest has had far-reaching consequences too that's a little more straightforward in some ways it's just it's this this sort of framing device for the entire story but the polygamy is more of an internal like there's more wiggle room here it's a little more uh tricky to see how it affects things like when we delve through our tomes and sources here the lore the a quote from Tyrion comes to mind which says we're all just puppets dancing on the strings of those who came before us part of that is him he's more thinking of recent memory of like your father and mother like have so much control over your life but he's also alluding to, well, if his ancestor Ca uh, Land the Clever hadn't done what he did, then he wouldn't be a lord of Castle Rock himself. So huge domino effects of what our ancestors do, some more than others, though. I mean, Aegon, one of the biggest ever in that case. So past actions by powerful nations or people are the same puppet strings metaphor writ large it sets the stage for later and it can be large scale like war like a conquest or a relatively small event like a marriage or in this case two marriages which is a such a bigger deal than just one <laughs> at least at the same time let's look at the consequences of Aegon's marriage decisions first with another quote it had long been the custom amongst the dragon lords of Valyria to wed brother to sister, to keep the bloodlines pure, but Aegon took both his sisters to bride. By tradition, he would have been expected to wed only his older sister, Visenya. The inclusion of Rhaenys as a second wife was unusual, though not without precedent. It was said by some that Aegon wed Visenya out of duty and Rhaenys out of desire. It doesn't appear to have happened with any of the other lords of Dragonstone. Any of his recent ancestors born in Westeros, we have no evidence of a multiple, uh, of a polygamous marriage. So it's, it's sort of wishy-washy the way it's presented. It's like unusual, but not without precedent. Like this is pretty wide bookends. Like not without precedent means it hardly ever happens. But not unusual, that doesn't sound... <laughs> that doesn't sound that severe, you know? So there's a pretty big wiggle room there. I think partly they don't know. I think the maesters aren't that versed in how often it would have happened back in Valyria. I mean, we don't have a lot about Valyria in general, but especially about customs and laws and just how basic parts of their society even operated in terms of laws and, like, customs and traditions. But here's a, a small clue into that window. Apparently it has happened before, and... Maybe that's in part because of some of the magical bloodline stuff. I'm not exactly sure why that would be the case here, but it makes sense because we have pretty strong evidence that there is magical blood in the Targaryens. It both explains their affinity for dragons and why 
perhaps they don't have the normal consequences of incest that you would see in the real world. Uh, so, well, or you have a reduced version of that, perhaps not, uh, not the severity you would see in the real world. So it absolutely has severe consequences with Magor. Magor decides to take a second wife. It blows up badly. And he's like, well, and for a penny and for a pound, let's go three, let's go four, five, six. As we talked about in our Under the Dragon's Hightower episode, why didn't he go seven? The seven, it's the religion that, well, because he's fighting against the seven. I don't know. Magor is not very creative. Neither were his, neither was his court. But we're not, we're well before Magor now. Let's not, let's stay where we are. It comes up in Damon Blackfire's story as a potential possibility, something that's rumored. He maybe thought he could have two wives. If he had become king, he might have. Uh, it could absolutely play out in the story of Rhaegar and Lyanna. In the show's version, it totally did. The doctrine of exceptionalism is important to point out here. We're going to cover that when we get to it, but it doesn't exist at this point yet, obviously. But it does exist for Rhaegar, after Rhaegar and Lyanna. But it didn't exist at the time of Magor. So that's an important to keep in mind that you know, times change, Doctrine of Exceptionalism was developed, and the whole thing changed. The whole custom, the whole attitude towards it, so one of the other immediate short-term effects it has is there's a number of lords and ladies, some of them former queens, um, will offer third wives to Aegon, which they would never have done if he just had one. You know, the second is the big leap. You're not like, well, what's a third if you've already got two? It's the having, going from one to two, that's the huge <laughs> difference, right? But if if you're someone who thinks that it's either monogamy, one or many. You don't like, you don't really distinguish necessarily between two, three, four, five. You're like, well, if you're going beyond one, why would you stop there? They don't get it. Especially with the mentality, the, the, the I don't know, male dominated world yeah. that we have here. So, absolutely. So, the Queen Regent of the Vale, Shara Aaron's like, I'll be your third wife, but only if you name my son your heir, which is like, well, that is a big ask and sure to be turned down, which indeed it was. She knew it would probably be rejected, but, you know, you make this public declaration of, of your value. You're like, well, I'm good enough to be in this Targaryen wives club <laughs> and my son. And if I am, well, then I'm e equal to you. My son should come first. She's the, he's the oldest. Well, it's like, well, your son isn't the son of the king, though. <laughs> anyway, it was a big ask, but, you know, a bold, bold choice cotton we'll see how it works out for her it didn't but it didn't have any consequences either he just said you know no and that was that so no biggie right uh it's rumored later that manfred hightower offered one of his daughters to Aegon as a third wife that's a rumor we don't know about it. and it comes more like after the conquest rather than before it but first of them all was king argilac the arrogant who proposed the marriage of his one daughter his only child to Aegon. This one did escalate. Unlike <laughs> Queen Sh Regent Shara, there was no consequences for the proposal. This one had a lot of problems, though. And we're also going to see issues and successes much, much later with Dragonstone and Storm's End and various marriages. If you think ahead to, you know, the Laughing Storm and his maybe son, Lionel Baratheon, having that trial by combat with Dunk. Yeah, and uh, yeah, there's some, of course, Stannis is, of course, his grandmother is uh, Targaryen, Robert and Renly too, of course. So there's a lot of, 
these houses have a lot of history to come. This is just the start of it. Now, let's talk briefly about Argilac before we get into a little more of this. Interesting that he only has his one maiden daughter. He's an old man at this point, still capable of fighting. A good warrior still, despite having lost some of his luster through time. It sounds like he's at least in his 50s, maybe late 50s, maybe early 60s. So it's unusual that he only has a young maiden daughter as his only kid. I recall from our Before the Dragons episode, Nina floated the idea that since Argilac also fought against the Volantines, like Aegon did right after the Doom when they were trying to reestablish or establish a new empire over the remains of Valyria, Argilac and Aegon were sort of allies fighting against that those imperial pretensions. Nina suggests that Argilac had probably had some sons or maybe brothers or uncles that participated in those wars and maybe that's why they're not around anymore because it is weird for a guy in his 50s or 60s to only have one young daughter youngish daughter like if he had an older daughter you know okay well fine you know he had her a long time ago but where are all his other kids you know he would have had kids when he was young and they're not there anymore so he outlast outlived them which is important to think about like this is he's kind of a sour old guy (laughs) so maybe this is part of why he's sour as he lost definitely lost a wife because he doesn't have he's not married as far as we know at this point so probably has multiple probably has had multiple wives and lost multiple wives because i'm guessing argella this daughter is not from his first wife (laughs) because where were the kids when he was younger right it just doesn't really add up so the buffer is what we're calling this next part this is argilac's attempt to play politics and create a new border a new state between him and the encroachment of the greatest, most powerful king in Westeros at the time, which is King Heron the Black, who has been a problem for Argilac for a while. Here's the quote. No king in Westeros felt more threatened than Argilac the Storm King, last of the Durandin, an aging warrior whose only heir was his maiden daughter. Thus it was that King Argilac reached out to the Targaryens on Dragonstone, offering Lord Aegon, his daughter in marriage, with all the lands east of the God's Eye, from the Trident to the Blackwater Rush, as her dowry. Aegon Targaryen spurned the Storm King's proposal. He had two wives, he pointed out. He did not need a third. And the dower lands being offered had belonged to Harrenhal for more than a generation. They were not Argilacs to give. Plainly, the aging Storm King meant to establish the Targaryens along the Blackwater as a buffer between his own lands and those of Heron the Black. So instead of him having to defend these borderlands against the encroachment of the Ironborn King, he's like, let's put the Targaryens there, and they'll be the ones defending it, and Heron will go ramming up against them and their dragons instead of me. Not the worst idea on the surface, but it's just a little transparent. It's just too obvious what he's trying to do here, and, and Argilac doesn't sound very clever. Because... Uh, Aegon figured all this out pretty quickly because it is pretty straightforward. If you're looking at the screen, which I encourage you to do, we've got a map up there. You can see what we're talking about here. Obviously, you're going to have to pretend King's Landing isn't there because it wasn't yet. But that, but you can look at King's Landing as the site where Aegon landed and where he was operating. And that's basically the general area that Argilac was trying to create a buffer between the Stormlands and Harrenhal, which, you know... Her- those lands were expanding. Harrenhal was was trying to exert its authority over everything in range, and that range was growing because, well, 
Heron Hall was almost finished. He was really close to finishing. Legend says that the day Aegon set foot on land with the intent to conquer was the same day Heron Hall was finished. Probably not quite that smooth and, and, and exact, but whatever. It's close enough to make no matter. It's uh, basically at the same time, which, by the way, is an important consideration in terms of when, the timing of all this, which we'll be discussing on and off throughout this early stage of the conquest. Even if the lands offered had been Argilax to give, Aegon probably wouldn't have accepted, right? I mean, he didn't want to be a buffer state. He didn't want to be an ally of these other people. He wanted to make them his subjects. So it really, it really wasn't on the table anyway. But this might explain part of why Argilac got so mad about in the end. Partly because he was a little desperate. His plan didn't work. And he had worked with Aegon before. So maybe he thought they would be more agreeable uh, and come to some arrangement because of fighting against Volantis together. Heron himself would have seemed uh, like the common enemy of everyone. He is the big dog at the table right now, the one pushing everyone around, the one breaking a lot of Westerosi customs with those ironborn semantics. Oh, I don't have slaves. I have thralls, right? And he had, he had taken a lot of thralls to build Hall and work them to death. These are people, it's like peasants that he just stole from our surrounding lands and some that live in his own lands and just put them to work. And no one liked this guy. He's a bad king. This reminds me of what we were talking about earlier about sort of the perfect storm of things coming together. Maybe this is part of what Aegon realized from a diplomatic standpoint that might enable him to take Westeros over is that there's this one person who is A, very powerful and B, not very liked. And if he could take them out, other people will think, well, if he took out Heron, he can take out me. And also, I'm glad he took out Heron. Maybe this guy's not so bad, right? So. You're totally right. This is That's a really good analysis, Sean. And it, it's, it also expands into some other topics I wanted to talk about. Think about that in the real world. It's extremely common for a politician's platform to be, I'm not that guy. <laughs> like, yeah. you, you have, you've experienced a crappy leader, and someone's like, well... I'm better than him. And they're like, anyone but them. Okay, we'll vote for you or we'll elect you or we'll join your army, depending on what you know time and place we're talking about. However, they settle politics, whatever it is, whether it's voting or war or whatever. Uh, so this would have been, this is a similar state. Yeah, you have someone who's really unpopular. Aegon's like, hey, yeah, by comparison, I'm great. I'm open-handed. He's going to do all the things the opposite and just to show people what it could be like. Then he can, then he can pull all that back. It was like, now that I'm in charge, I don't have to do all that nice stuff anymore. <laughs> it's like, now you see what I'm really like. And, and, and yeah, he is better than Heron. Like, that's, it, he was nowhere near as t tyrannical as Heron. He is a better leader. He is a better guy to have in charge. It's a pretty low bar. But you're right. It's an extremely Heron. low bar. Okay, <laughs> let me give you an example. Uh, going way back in time. Way back in time. The time of of ancient Babylonia, the ancient Persian Empire. Okay. Uh, the Assyrians, I think it was, had conquered Babylon. And the Assyrians were really tyrannical, really hard, heavy-handed rulers. Which, by the way, Heron the Black's grandfather was literally hard when hard hand. <laughs> so, that's pretty similar, right? And the Persian Empire, sorry, the Persian Empire comes along and is like the... Cyrus the Great, the founder of the Persian Empire, is like, 
I'm going to let you do all the things that the Assyrians couldn't do. They're like, they're trying to control your religion. I'm for whatever religion you want to have. So I'm for freedom to worship. So it's like, they're just, he's just presenting himself as the opposite to all the things the Assyrians were. It's like, you guys can't do this. I'll let you do this. They're taxing you like this. I'm going to tax you less. They're doing that. Just figures out all the things people hate and says, I'm going to do the opposite. It does a version that they'll like. And so they flocked to his banner. When, when he came to Babylon, the Babylonians were like, were like, yay. They just kicked out all the Assyrians. They just needed him to show up and present his strength and just know that he was backing them and was actually there. The timing had to be right. Very similar consideration here. Aegon can read the, the tea leaves and be like, yeah, everyone hates Heron. So if I go after him, people might join me. They certainly won't help him. They might just wait and sit back and do nothing. But they're not going to rush to his defense. If they join anyone, it'll be me. Maybe more likely they don't do anything. And as you said, Sean, if you knock off the most powerful guy there, well, it just shows that, well, he knocked off the most powerful guy, then that must make him the most powerful guy. And he didn't have any of our help to do it. Because <laughs> he he spurns all these alliances. Like, no, I'm, I'm not about alliances. No, I'm not taking your marriage offer. I'm not taking your alliance, your deal. I'm taking your submission. That's it. That's all I'm taking. If you're not going to submit, I'm going to make you submit. It's a very, very boss attitude. He's like, yeah, no, I don't need your help at all. I'm going to sh- do it myself. And that's going to prove definitively that, I, th- that I'm strong enough to do it. And if I can conquer you, once I've conquered you, you're not going to try to overthrow me because, well, I'm going to be even stronger <laughs> once I've settled the conquest and started making and hopefully you're not going to want to yeah hopefully you're not going to want to because you you guys weren't trying to overthrow heron as bad as he was you weren't teaming up against him i'm not going to be that bad right you you part of why you didn't team up against him is because you couldn't beat him anyway even though he was bad well you can't beat me either and i'm not bad so right we should all be on board yeah the path is clear if you look at it that way it's like well yeah they, they could they they couldn't gang up against the common enemy and that's a meta dream perspective here too. Think about it that way. If Aegon's like, okay, this realm needs to be united to fight a common enemy later, they clearly aren't doing it now. <laughs> they can't do it against this evil guy right in their midst. They're not certainly not going to be able to do it against a supernatural foe that's way up in the north. They can't get their act together here in the center of the continent where it's warm. <laughs> like they're not going to march north then. And he's right. Like they're probably not. Like again, the TV show isn't exactly what's going to happen. But when half of the Westeros went to fight the others in the realm, the other half stayed in the south fighting over the same old stuff they always did, just trying to win the throne, like ignoring the danger. That's a very rational thing to expect. (laughs) It's not rational behavior, but it's rational to expect that level of irrational behavior. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So it's, it's proving his point. He's like, I need to unite this realm. They're not uniting against a common foe. This proves that I need to be the one to unite them against the common foe. Yeah, it's very self-fulfilling. And uh, it's hard to poke holes in the logic in some ways, right? It's a pretty good argument, you know, in this setting, right? Continuing on here, though, Heron himself might have known some of this. He might have seen some of it coming, but the guy's just too stubborn and and bossy and authoritative to to bend. He's This isn't a Balon Greyjoy. Remember, Balon, his saving grace one of the few smart things balon ever said was bend the knee like if you're beaten bend the knee don't be don't lose your head along with it don't chase you know don't make your loss worse by denying that you've lost (laughs) 
bending the knee never, you don't lose your head bending your knee. You can stand back up later <laughs> if you, but if you lose your head, you'll never stand up again. It's like, don't let your pride ruin it. It's like, yeah, that's true, Balon. Yeah. If you're beaten, admit you're beaten. You know, don't take your ego out of it, which is difficult because it's a lot of times it's ego and pride that causes you to, to rise up in the first place. Not always. Sometimes it's injustice, but it was an injustice in Balon's case. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. <laughs> so... Argalax's grandfather, we got to keep something else in mind about some recent history. Argalax's grandfather had lost lands to this to the to House Hor, to Heron, uh, Black Heron's ancestors, recent ancestors. The Storm Kings had ruled a lot of the territory that had since been taken over by the Ironborn. They had they were on the rise now. This is their zenith. They were they were or their nadir rather. They were on a decline. And our, in fact, Argalax's strength as a leader, even though he didn't manage this situation very well, earlier in his career, he did a lot of things really well, and he held back the decline of the Durandans. It probably would have come sooner if not for him. So we're painting him as kind of a, a guy who makes a lot of mistakes here. But when he was younger, uh, his maybe like and again like a Robert, like his early decisions were good, but he wasn't. In peacetime, he wasn't so good. Right, He's a good wartime ruler, but... Yeah, that was a Durandan trait that the Baratheons inherited. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good, good, way, good way to put it, yeah. You know, I, I have a question. Something I feel like I should know, but I don't have a good idea. The Riverlands kind of became a kingdom after Aegon took over. Well, and they were reset him, right? to one. They had been one. Okay. They were restored. That's what I was going to gonna ask. They hadn't been for a long time. It was like 600 years, yeah. 600 years. Okay. Something like okay. that. So the, 600. the territory that is the Riverlands now, that was just divvied up among the, the Reach and the West and well, the Stormlands? It, it had been itself. It was a unique, uh, you know, its own kingdom. And then eventually the Storm Kings took a big chunk of it, like all, like the eastern portion of it. And it was, and then they took even more of it and they started picking more and more of it off. It's obviously this isn't a, this is a fluid situation. And then the Ironborn came. The Heron's dynasty came in and took it over and took the, the east, the western portion of the Riverlands and then eventually kicked out the Stormlands. This was a case of the Riverlanders rose for the Ironborn. They're like, oh, we can kick out the Stormlands if we assist the Ironborn. It was the reverse of what we just described. Like, oh, let's get rid of these cruel leaders that don't belong here because these new guys are coming along to help us push them out. This time, the new guys were worse than the old guys. Heronborn, the Ironborn took over and predictably ruled them a lot more harshly than the Stormlanders did. So they kicked out a king in favor of Renewin, and, and it made things worse for them. So it took Aegon to restore the old borders. And so, because I feel like that would have been a, I don't know, a point of contention, the Stormlands having to give it. If he puts Orius in charge, it's easier. He's going to do whatever yes. Aegon says, right? But some of that, none of that land came from the Reach or the North or the Westerlands or anything? Uh, Probably, maybe a little bit of the West, but it's not very well specified. Because the, we the West's borders with the Riverlands are very natural. Like, it's like where the mountains begin. There's like a, some pretty clearly defined yeah. geographical borders there that makes it a little, little uh, more... D uh, clear where these demarcations are and the reaches lines that maybe no one wants to fight over anyway yeah like, sure you can have the mountaintop that no one can get to anyway okay fine yeah and the reach yes it would have it would have encroached a bit too but the reach 
is also so centrally located that it's got borders with the West, borders with Stormlands, borders with Dorne. So it's already like whenever... And the Tyrells are also just going to do whatever Aegon says, right? They're fully bought in. Exactly. If they want to get some lands back for the Riverlands, sure, yeah, whatever. Just don't burn us down, yeah. So when they were ruled by the Gardeners, yeah, they were trying to expand their borders, but the reach was so large that it was hard to expand their borders. Recall the story from The Sworn Sword, that when the King of the Reach went to try to fight the Stormlands, and this was a long time back, the West invaded the Reach. And it was, remember, his house had that heroic stand. The Osgrays, like, held back, like, killed the King of the of the West in this heroic fight that he, he died in also. And it's, like, a really important milestone for for the history of House Osgray. So, yeah, so this is what happens. Like, they, they keep an eye on each other. Like, oh, it's like a board game. You send all your troops east then someone's going to invade you from the west like you can very clearly see where their opportunity comes from and you can see it coming before it even happens so there's a lot of backstory here a lot of political situation a lot of moving borders that Aegon is trying to pick his timing for like you said there's there's an argument that this timing was very precise based on exactly this and what was going on with these big players at the time one very unpopular king with a very large kingdom another fading king whose domain has been on the decline for a while and those two are right next to each other neither of them have a lot uh going for them in terms of help they're gonna have to stand on their own Aegon. so it might seem odd that Aegon, when he when it comes comes time for the conquest didn't focus on individual kings. He went for one while Visenya went for another and Rhaenys went for another. You, on, that's a little unusual. You might think they'd focus on one at a time, but they were going fast and they thought that worked to their advantage. And we'll talk about that a little more when, when we get to that, but let's get back. Also to helps it. prove a point that, Hey, we yeah. could. Yeah. It was just proving. What if we could. teamed up, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. So let's see this next quote, which is Aegon's response to Argilac for the marriage offer his own offer the lord of dragonstone countered with an offer of his own he would take the dowerlands being offered if argilac would also cede massey's hook and the woods and plains from the blackwater south to the river windwater and the headwaters of the mander the pact would be sealed by the marriage of argilac's daughter to Ori's baratheon lord aegon's childhood friend and companion these terms argilac the arrogant rejected angrily all right, O'Shea's got the map up again. You can see where the spot roughly where King's Landing is. You look a little bit south. You see uh, the Wendwater over there just east of what's marked as the Crown Lands, just south of Blackwater Bay. And Massey's Hook, of course, is, is the nice little point sticking out there that points right at Driftmark and Dragonstone, where Sharp Point and Stone Dance are. That's an interesting ask for Aegon. You might say, well, he's asking for a lot. On the other hand, these lords... Sharp Point, Stone Dance, they had kind of already stopped working for Argilac, for the Storm Kings. They were technically sworn to Storm's End, but the lords of Sharp Point, this is Bar Emin and Massey, would show up at Aegon's councils, even though they were sworn to Storm's End. So they were kind of already his. So he was asking for, he's like, look, these guys are already kind of mine. Let's make it official. But Argilac wasn't having that. He didn't like that. So he rejected this. Not only did he reject it angrily, as the quote says, he cut off the envoy's hands. This is a massive breach of protocol. For a king to do that to another high lord is really out of 
place. I mean, that's just, it's a wild thing to do. I mean, just say no and tell him you're mad and, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'll kill you if I see you. But his envoy, I mean, that's just, you just don't do that. It's a, this violates their religion. It violates his honor. I mean, it's, it's not a viable pushback by the dictates of their culture. So I, I think that even people in Argalac's own court were probably uncomfortable with this. They were like, don't do that, King. You know, they may not have said anything because the dude's mad enough to do it. Well, what might he do to you for, for saying don't do that? You know, so, but, but by, in their minds, they'd be like, ooh, this is, this is a cursed thing to do. This might bring bad fortune on us. The gods will not shine on us here. But hey, Storm's End is, it's founding is wrapped up in, you know, pushing back against the gods, denial of what the gods want, right? The whole legend of, Duran Durandun and Elenai was was a you know middle finger to the gods. It's like no, I'll my daughter your your daughter is gonna marry me. Screw you, you know. <laughs> Even still, this envoy is not a guy. He's just a dude trying to do his job, like chopping someone's hands off. Never mind envoy or gods or protocol. It's just messed up, man. It's just a messed up thing to do. Period. Yeah, it, re- it reminds us of a Dance with Dragons when Danny sends envoys to Mantaris only to have their heads cut off and sent back in a box. Now, Mantaris isn't exactly a city that is beholden to Westerosi cultural values. But the treatment of envoys is kind of a universal thing. This is... Yeah, it's, oh, the it's treatment of people's heads is kind of a universal <laughs> thing. <laughs> it's hard for a culture to exist that doesn't respect people's heads. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a messenger. Like, talk about literally killing the messenger. I mean, damn, this is, this is bad. So... Real quick, these lands, how similar is that to what just ended up being the crown lands anyway? Oh, it's pretty much what is the crown lands, yeah. Right. It becomes the crown lands. And didn't yeah. this marriage just ended up happening anyway also, yeah. right? Yeah. This is just purely, <laughs> this guy should listen to Balon. Yeah, yeah, really should have. <laughs> and it's odd, a couple of things are odd about this. So he's not willing to have his daughter marry Oris. He gets mad about that because Oris is a bastard, which in their culture, I guess that is, you know. I wouldn't have reacted like that, but it, it, it might have it might have been meant as an insult. I doubt it, because Ori's and Aegon were friends and childhood companions. Like I don't think Aegon was like I'm going to insult him by offering my best friend's hand. Ha <laughs> ha! Watch this. But he may have played it both ways. He's like, well, from our perspective, this is the only Targaryen blood you'll get. You know, we this is something we're very protective of. We don't just marry other houses because we keep the blood of the dragon pure this guy is my half brother my father's son he is the blood of valyria so us having him married to someone is a big deal sure he's a bastard but does that even mean the same thing to a valyrian a bastard like i don't think they have the same we certainly can't assume it that they care to the same degree that a westerosi person does about children out of wedlock i already know the dornish don't care as much and they even follow the same religion as the faith of the seven. So it isn't even necessarily a religious thing. It's more of a cultural thing. And we cannot assume at all, given how little we know about Valyria, that, that children in or out of wedlock matter as much, especially given the importance of the actual magical blood being passed down. I kind of think that's the more important part, or at least would be a more important consideration from a Valyrian perspective. It's like, who's actually giving our blood? Who's actually a threat to take our dragons? Are the people that have this bloodline? So it's a big offer from their perspective. So they might... Argalak rejecting it angrily might be like, you're angry at our offer? We offered you a lot. And it isn't even necessarily a point of pride like, oh, you should be willing to accept this because you're lesser than us. No, they 
almost treated him like an equal. This is as close as they ever get to treating someone like an equal in this early phase. You know, per your logic, it might not have been so crazy for Aegon the Unworthy to have legitimized his bastards. <laughs> think being bastards is a big deal. Yeah, maybe. Know? I mean, that's a lot farther down the timeline, but you're right. It might yeah. be a little, yeah. He's thinking yeah, that The cultural maybe. effects might have bled more into the Targaryens, and it definitely has awful implications about how the the, 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 the crown is going to be passed and the wars that start because of it. But maybe in and of itself, he's like, of course I legitimize my bastards. They're Targaryens or Targaryens. He might have had that. Bastards doesn't, doesn't matter. You yeah, know, so. yeah. Like, yeah, just, just different values. Yeah, you're right to think about it from a different angle. It's not the same perspective as that we see from a lot of Westerosi and their attitude towards bastardy. Also, by the way, the removal of hands... Recurring theme with House Baratheon, one way or the other. <laughs> a lot of removed hands are going to become important here. Uh, and including their in-laws much later with Jamie. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So it's wild that he was upset about bastardy, but he, did he just not care that he was offering his own daughter to be a third wife to a house? Like, wh- how is the, House Durandon going to continue if you give your only daughter to Aegon and it's his third wife? Like, what? how does this even work? Like, he's concerned about this bastardy thing, but he doesn't seem to mind that his own daughter that he's offering to Aegon is going to be in a polygamous marriage, which is against their beliefs. And, well, who is Storm's End going to go to when he's dead? His daughter that is just now married to the crown? Like, he's is he... He's asking you for just this small bit of the crown lands. Well, it's not the crown lands yet, but he's asking you for the small bit of territory that's kind of already his because the lords already show up for his meetings. But you're giving him the whole Stormlands by giving his your daughter to him. Like this guy just, I, I, there's either more to the story or he didn't think it through or both. Like this one potential possibility here, again, thinking of the story that we're front and center on right now house of the dragon slash the beginning of the dance of the dragons and fire and blood look at how baratheon reacted um boros baratheon reacted to being told he had to help rainera he's like oh so i'm just ha- i just you call me you just call my name and i have to send my armies up you know that's how it works pride big deal here his pride was severely tested by this and there's long been a theory that the maester didn't use the exact language from the letter. He may have exaggerated it to push him one way or the other. We, because Boros Baratheon can't read the maester, and the show was clever. They had him read it into his ear, like he's like he's the whisper, 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 whisper. So we don't know what was said. Just like in Fire and Blood presents it that way, the maester whispers in his ear, and it's like whispers in his ear. Eh? When you hear that phrase, you're like, well, how did ex- how exactly did he word it? He's trying to push it one way and say, yeah, there's a possibility here as well. Argalak gets a letter. Do you think Argalak could read? I don't know. I'm, I'm dubious, let's say. It's, it's dubious. It's very questionable. Might so maybe his maester read it to him. What's that? Might be lacking that skill. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. He Argalaks the ability to read. Yeah. <laughs> frequent reminder that we've made before that Argalak the Arrogant was a character George created in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> not for obviously not for song of ice and fire originally it was in his uh the dark gods of core Yuban or whatever it was i forget exactly i know we've talked about this before but i don't have it in my notes for this episode but anyway so the arrogance certainly comes out here <laughs> this, this this guy's like plan to commit suicide by dragon <laughs> yes that was it core Yuban. yeah you got it right core Yuban. all right yeah. go me so 
did Aegon know? Like, we, I wonder, did he know what he was thinking? Did he know this would piss Aragalak off? Did he, was he trying to bait Aragalak? He's like, I know this is going to piss him off and we'll just, that's going to work. If you put him on tilt, he's going to make dumb decisions. That'll make this all the more easier. Regardless, aside from what Aragalak thought of Oris's, this offer, Oris's hand is really valuable aside the bloodline dragon bonding stuff. Even taking that aside, He's the highest-ranking unlanded Valyrian person at Aegon's court, not named Targaryen. Obviously, the Valyrians and Celtigars are landed, so that's they're not including them. And he's Aegon's friend. Like, how good of an inn is that? To have, as your in-law, the king's childhood best friend. Like, he's shunning this. Like, again, from Aegon's point, like, man, we offered this guy a lot. <laughs> and he just cut our envoy's hands off, right? Like... But if he knows that's going to happen, if he know he probably doesn't know the hands are going to get cut off. But if he predicts an angry reaction, it can be like, oh, we're the good guys here. Westeros sees the situation. Who's the one violating laws of hospitality? Argilac. Who's the one making disingenuous offers? Argilac. Who's the one offering to marry the daughter, but just under slightly different circumstances? Aegon is. Like, this. Aegon seems like he's more willing to compromise, like, from a high-level view. So Argalak just comes off looking real bad here. Whether no matter what side you take, in terms of public, in terms of optics, Argalak looks bad. And he looks dumb too, I think. <laughs> A little more about Oris. We don't know anything about his mother. Like we know he was a, his father was Arian, you know, Aegon and Visenya and Rhaenys' dad. But like where does this name Baratheon even come from? It's completely just out of, like, because, again, this is another reason why it, it's a clue that bastardy works a lot different in Valyrian culture. Or had gone some, maybe gone some evolution at Dragonstone over those hundred years. He's not Ori's Waters. Right? And, Were there no Baratheons before him? Is he the first the Baratheon first we know we of? Know the of. first that we know of. Yeah. Maybe his mom was, yeah, was it It's possible that his mom yeah. was, like, it's possible his not, mom's name was, like, Theon, like right, like like it could be like Bar could mean you know, just like how you could be Bar Emin, and like we see. That I was gonna say it's even a Bar Emin, yeah, yeah. Like, because of Bar, and Emin, that's how Stone Dance, one of so these like, ones that yeah that we just talked about. So like the idea that you could say Bar means like of like someone like Emin was their father, Theon or Elthi. I don't know. That's my theory about it. Is that maybe mm, there like is that. a root in terms of like the the name of the parent. So, yeah, we have no idea where that name originates. Nowhere. So, yeah, it could come from the mother. It could be like she was a noble yeah. of some kind from some house, from, from dis disenfranchised house back from Valyria that, that, that fled with the Targaryens. So she still has noble blood, but she's they, she not landed anymore. And Arian, yeah, that was my thought that maybe it was some other ancient Valyrian house, or maybe not ancient, but someone concurrent to the Targaryens, yeah. some sort of tribute, or maybe actually relative of them. I like the bar, because Bar Emmons also is such a, it doesn't fit the mold of any other names. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so now thinking about how similar Baratheon is to that, I really like your idea, Shay. Yeah. It's almost like, yeah, it is a because Bar, I mean, that sounds like a real life Jewish name. Yeah, like that is kind of what it makes suffix you... is like a male. Yeah. Is it male or female? That's male, right? Yeah, it's male. Yeah, for like yeah. Bar Mitzvah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Or it's Bar, you know. It's a Bar for, Mitzvah, yeah. Um, for women. So that, that is kind of what it makes me think of as well. I don't, I, you know, and like Bar Emin is... Son of Theon or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah, so it's very, yeah, it's a really compelling idea. And, and and so there might have been, and this person, this mother of Oris, might have still been alive. Like, 
it's entirely possible. As Aegon and Visenya and Rhaenys' mother was probably alive too. Valenia. It's entirely possible, but you know she died on Shadowbirth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so obviously Valyria, would, just like Westeros, would have to account for things like property laws and inheritance. So they they would have laws around bastardy and all that stuff. But it, again, we cannot assume it's the same, and we definitely can't assume the cultural view of bastards is the same or, or even similar. Because in Westeros, they're obviously they're shunned and like like big time, and there's no reason to think that's how it was in Valyria. Yeah. All right, I think that's our good good place to stop for this week. We're gonna start next week with the claim, the, the thing I started talking about by accident. I jumped yeah. ahead, and Ashea pointed out I had jumped ahead. Good catch there. So that'll be a great place to start next week, and I'm excited for that. This was a great start. I loved our pacing here. I loved our progress. I loved a lot of the little rabbit holes we dove into. Some of them, most of them were planned. A few of them were not. Uh, that's that's the value of doing these things live. A couple of y'all threw in some ideas that helped us out. And that's how it's going to go. We'll hone our process a little more, but this is basically how it's going to go uh, the way through until we get to the death of Viserys. Another uh, comment from Christina K. In my opinion, the reason George's mysteries work so well is that he never asks the question in universe. Like, no one ever asks who is John's dad? Right? You just read it and you're like, wait a minute, who is John's dad? Which is just what we did with Oris Baratheon. Like, what's Oris's mom? Like, who's Oris's mom? Where does his name come from? No one in the world asks, where does the name Baratheon come from? Because <laughs> if we they did, we'd, be, we'd have thought about this a lot sooner, perhaps. We would have arrived, perhaps, in the same place. Because <laughs> we have the same info, but we wouldn't have... It's fun to discover the question on your own, rather than have it thrown in your face. It's neat. It's a little more satisfying when you discover the question. Uh, or when we discover the question and tell it you on a podcast. Hmm. Yeah. All right, the trivia question. The question was, what does George himself call Fire and Blood, his nickname for it, as inspired by J.R. Tolkien? Did anyone get this one? Yeah, a lot of people got it. I thought so. A lot, a lot of people, people got it. A few people had some fun guessing some, like, other ideas they were like you know targillion you know targaryen uh sil margaryon you know like people got a little silly but i just like i think everyone knew it's the germarillion yeah, yeah. which is funny because it says the word marillion like the singer <laughs> but uh and the band the english band the british band from the 70s but yes the germarillion is what he calls it the g like the silmarillion of course the, the tolkien history and lore book that is beloved i have also read the silmarillion myself i do not remember much about it at all it was a long time ago but uh, uh it's, it was fun I, I do remember enjoying it can i add a little thing here to the talk about bar names but of course uh, but, so um i got a message um not in the chat from um listener dom yeah. who said he has a Reddit post from many years ago where he theorized that Barr was an SOC bastard name. Oh. And I, the notable thing here that I'll take from that is that the original, the name of the original Bar Emin is Togarian Bar Emin. And they say he's an Andal warlord. It doesn't sound very Andal. It sounds like a Valyrian, like bastard, like an SOC, like Togarian. Yeah. Like that sounds like he was a bastard of, like, I don't know. I think, I think it's a good idea. Togarian sounds a lot like Targaryen. But it, it really credits close. him as being yeah. an Andal warlord, so I think that was a bastard who was part Andal, part... I like it. Yeah. I like Anyways. an Andal Valyrian bastard. That's a cool idea. Official headcanon until yeah. we're corrected, which will probably be never. <laughs> <laughs> 
but I like it. Uh, so yeah, Germerillion was the answer. Next week we'll pick up where we left off. Left off, and if you want to dive deeper into these related topics, check out our episode before the dragons. Check out our multiple episodes under the dragons. Check out the episode on Balerion. Check out the episode on the Doom. Check out the episode on Dragonstone. Check out our two episodes on Valyrian history. Check out our episode on Valarian history. Check out our episode on Celtigar or Celtigar if you prefer. That's one episode, not two. <laughs> Check out our episode. What if we on... did one episode on Celtigar and one episode on Celtigar <laughs> and we just like recorded the same thing? <laughs> the same just... thing. We just pronounced it differently. <laughs> yeah, just said it differently. Like, yeah. <laughs> or check out our episode on the Kentury of Blood. I mean, the Century of Blood. <laughs> or, the our, of blood. or our patrons only episode on Mantaris, uh, where those heads were cut off. And heads are a big part of that episode because there's multiple headed people in Mantaris. And for that reason, we theorize that maybe there's a connection between Mantaris and Melis the Monstrous, who had a congenital twin sticking out of his neck. Yikes. Yeah, that's <laughs> strange. But apparently a real-life thing. But in this case, probably supernatural and not a reflection of the real-life thing. <laughs> <laughs> but who knows? Anyway, we'll see you all next week. Thank you, patrons, for supporting us. We really appreciate you backing us financially. We are still trying to build ourselves up to a uh, the ability for all three of us to make a living at this show. We're, we're not there, but we'd like to continue growing. And we're going to do that by offering more and more, by doing better, by improving ourselves, improving our show. And hopefully that brings more listeners and more voluntary subscribers. Like also, some of th you are. thanks to everyone who showed up live today. I think a lot more of you showed up, but I think that happens when we have a new series kicking off like that. And hopefully... Y'all will stick around, and even if you, you know, miss a week or two, hopefully you don't uh, feel like you, you, you've uh, lost the boat, missed the boat there, I yeah, suppose. Like, if right. you miss a week or two, it's probably only seven pages of the book. Yeah, so, so you know, I hope, because uh, we do end up having some drop-off, I feel like a lot of people tune in for the first week or two, and then maybe becomes, you know, they miss a week and they don't come back, but please... I like it when you're here live. I like getting your feedback and seeing the chat going off. I, I do appreciate that. But if you're listening later after the fact, I appreciate that as well. Absolutely. Any any way you can consume our show, we're very appreciative of. Should we mention our next Patreon meetup? We have oh, that scheduled for a couple yeah, weeks now, we right? Yeah, we do. We do. We should. We we will be. I'm going to announce it on Patreon. Um, but if you're here living live now, you can know that we're going to have our next Patreon Quiplash Discord Hangout will be on August 24th at 9 p.m. Eastern. And that post will go out with more info, but you can know to mark the day, the 24th. And again, we'll be doing them every month, varying the day. So if you miss this month, you'll catch the next time. Patreon is a cadet branch of House Baratheon. <laughs> <laughs> They're the financial managers of the Patreon, mm. yes. Um, yeah, that's it. Sure. And thank you for the happy belated birthday wishes as well. Yes, it was a shared birthday you. last week. I know. We I, that's why episode. we took a week off. We went to uh, Chicago. I went mm -hmm. to some Lollapalooza. We, drove. we saw We, we <laughs> saw a um, friend of the show, Tommy Pappas, who does uh, TKOK podcasts and other stuff. And um, he was a great host. And we just had a really great, I, it was my 30th birthday. And I had a great time. So thank it you. It was super fun. Yes. Thanks to people who came out to, to hang out with us while we were there, too. Cause yeah. Did. We did meet a few. We, we met like at least uh, we saw a few listeners, one of whom we met for the first time. Um, yes. Other people we had met before. Yes. So thanks, y'all. Thanks as well to Joey, Jesse, and Bran for our music and video intro to Michael Klarfeld. 
all so wonderful additions to our show, make us seem so much more professional. And thanks to the Benjineer for sound quality assistance. And going forward for the Fire and Blood series, for now we're trying out every episode on video, so you can watch us on Spotify and or YouTube. And on Spotify, you can toggle the on-off video feed. Some people, you don't want to have that much bandwidth on your phone, but you might can flip the video on when we mention that there's artwork or maps on screen, or if you just want to see what shirts we're wearing, I have my... You know, uh, John Cocteau what Theater Dragon here from this was the premiere, the premiere of House of the Dragon at that Georgia's Theater in Santa Fe. The Shay and I went oh, to cool. that. Uh, we were very lucky. There was a shirt for it, huh? Shirt for it. Yes, this is one of my most prized fandom shirts. Very. Good I have one. a. I got this shirt at the official Con of Thrones. Oh, or, yeah. what you, Game of Thrones Con. Yes, Game of Thrones Con LA. Cool. It's a House of Dragon shirt. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, not a house shirt, not so just you should the, the be, house to show. <laughs> so you should be hearing about the same amount of us, but you'll be seeing even more of us if you've been... You might want to toggle on to see my weird drinks. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do another soy sauce pickle juice one next someone, week. So, that? Someone suggested that you should <laughs> really throw people for a loop some week and just drink water. My drink today <laughs> is clear. Here. Look at this clear drink. I'm right. not wasting stomach my stomach space with empty calories from water. <laughs> 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 An insight into Sean's beverage thought process there <laughs> and with that we'll see you next week for more valar reread us